And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending upon where you are on this rotating, spinning globe. In fact, if you take a look at our globe on the other side of midnight.com, we've got an awful lot of people listening into us tonight. All those little blinking dots with the shockwaves going out, that's our app that tells us who's listening and from where. And we're in something like 190 countries, so welcome one, welcome all. Tonight is going to be a love affair of the air. Both my guest and I have this very, very deep love affair with ships, big ships, small ships, and for me, spaceships, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, So you're going to have a really interesting three hours, give or take, because we're going to go back in time. We're going to take a time machine and go back to the era when the United States ruled the seas. Not just because of her Navy, the U.S. Navy, but because of our love affair with ships. Some very great men in the 1940s and 50s created, actually even earlier, the two flagships of the United States of America. And we're going to talk about them tonight with someone who knows them in and out from stem to stern. And um, we'll get to that momentarily. But let me hit a few items on the news um, at the top here. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's banner on the great ships of the United States, that will take you to the guest page and scroll down into my items on radio with pictures. Item number one, NASA and SpaceX have rescheduled the first crew capsule test flight. Remember, Musk is creating now a private fleet of private spaceships to take crew to and from the International Space Station, and someday uh, a bit beyond, and he's building other spaceships to go much farther beyond. Well, that was going to originally take place, I believe, on the 7th of January, that first uh, test flight of the Dragon uh, spacecraft, which will be the U.S. Uh, flagship, We, I think. Of course, Boeing is also in the competition with their space liner. But I kind of have a an inkling for the uh, for the for the Musk contribution, as you can see, if you look at the picture, click on the picture. Musk has designed with his designers a really sexy spaceship. So we have to wait a little bit longer. Now, the the end of this year, 2018, and the beginning of next year, are going to be big big news in space. All kinds of things are happening. As I told you last night, the Chinese have left with an unmanned spacecraft to head to the moon. I was watching it tonight as this thin, slim crescent with the earthlit section gleaming brightly was setting in the west in our beautifully clear New Mexican skies. And knowing that the Chinese will get to the moon in uh, a couple days, they're going to get there on the 11th. They're going to go into orbit, as I said last night, and then they're going to take several weeks by taking really high-resolution images of the far side landing site, crater called uh, von Karman, which is named after a very famous physicist, Theodore von Karman, for which the von Karman Auditorium at uh, JPL in Pasadena is so named. So in the, in the bottom of von Karman crater, which is in the bottom of the Aiken Basin, which is the largest depression on the moon, something like, I believe, 12 miles below the mean surface of the moon on the far side southern hemisphere they're going to 
set down Chang Four. Remember, Chang stands for the goddess of the moon, Chang. And on Chang Three, the mothership, Chang Three, carried with it a little um, rover, a little robot called uh, U2, um, which was uh, basically its, its uh, translation means Jade Rabbit. We do not know yet for some reason. They haven't told us what the Chinese intend to call their identical rover with a few changes because of instruments on Chang 4. But I'm sure we'll find out in the next couple, three weeks, and they're going to land probably in the first couple, three days of the new year. So 2019 is going to be off to a very interesting start. Speaking of interesting starts, if you scroll down further from item one to item two, that's a link provided by our friend and uh, compatriot and research assistant, uh, Greg Ahrens. This is the direct link to the raw images of the NASA InSight website of the new lander that they placed uh, uh, last Monday on Mars, the InSight lander carrying the seismometer. And you remember last night I played for you some of the um, uh, seismic recordings they have made of the wind blowing across the solar panels. That's those two big circular things you can see in the picture under the uh, under the headline, Raw Images. So if you click on that link, that takes you to the actual Raw Images page for the InSight Lander. And there are something like 60 images now they have loaded up that you can look at. You click on them, you click on them again, they get bigger, they, you can make them full screen, you can examine them, you can, of course, you know, download them and put them into a imaging program and kind of look around. Um, we'll have a lot more to say about InSight in the next uh, weeks and months to come because the instrumentation is not going to really be in place until March, which I'm still very perplexed about. Why does it take four months to deploy a seismometer from a spacecraft that's working perfectly? Don't know. And as soon as we do, we'll let you know. Item number three is kind of a segue to tonight's program. I saw this this afternoon, and it's just it's just a, a, a crazy story. So let me kind of read a bit of it. Take a look at that picture. Designer Steve Kozioff, creator of the Goliath Polar Explorer series, has unveiled its most impressive member yet. The Alexis design blends grace and bulk across six decks. 380 foot long, this ultimate expedition yacht or even a sizable research vessel is designed to explore the literal ends of the earth. I mean, this thing has a 3,000 square foot hangar. It has space enough for four helicopters, small helicopters. It uh, has two pools which have hard retractable covers so they don't have to be drained when the ship is underway. It has an ice class hull designed to break through moderate ice. It even has a large garage to hold two submarines and multiple tenders and many other water toys. I mean, this is a billionaire's dream. Boy, but I'd love to even spend a couple nights aboard. Can you imagine going and exploring the world? Or even better, can you imagine taking something the equivalent in a future time and exploring another world because this is kind of what research ships either built by musk or nasa or essa or the russians or the japanese someday are going to uh, be like 
except they won't float on water. They will not be ships of the sea. They will be ships of space, calling to mind a quote that I was looking all afternoon for from my old friend Arthur Clark, and I couldn't find it and couldn't find it, so I have to remember it. But he said to me one, one afternoon, he said, you know, from all history of, of humans on Earth, the word ship has meant an ocean-going vessel. And for all future time, when people refer to ships, they'll be talking about vessels that ply between the stars. And on that note, I want to introduce our guest of the morning, Larry Driscoll, who is, not by happenstance, a maritime historian. And he kind of lucked into that, and we're going to get into how that all happened. So let me give you a thumbnail sketch. In 1950, at the age of seven, Larry Driscoll and his family boarded the SS America, sailing for La Havre, France. Over the next seven years, the Driscolls made several return trips on the SS United States. He has been fascinated by ocean liners ever since. After retiring from a career in education, Driscoll took up a second career as writer and marine maritime historian, specializing in the great American passenger liners. His first book, SS America, USS West Point, SS Australis, and Many Lives of a Great Ship, was well-received and went into a second printing. A series of articles for the magazine Power Ships led to his second book, on the SS United States, The Last Great Race. There is no shortage of books on the SS United States, but Driscoll's goal in writing this one was to provide the reader with fresh and new information, which he has done. So without further ado, Larry Driscoll, welcome to the story of your life. (laughs) Good evening, Richard. (laughs) Good evening. Well, where do we begin? I, I think I should just open the floor and Begin wherever you want, because we both share this love. I said to Larry before the show, I said, this is going to be a story of love affairs tonight between men and women and the ships they've sailed. And so Mm -hmm. since you were on her and I've never got the chance, start out with whatever great ship you want to talk about back when America was great. Yeah, thank you. Um, Let's start with the um, SS America. Uh, because it was a game changer in terms of a ship. Um, prior to the America, we had had uh, what some would call a, a mediocre fleet of uh, passenger liners to compete with some of the uh, great ocean liners um, that uh, from Europe, uh, such as the Normandy, the uh, Queen uh, Queen Mary, and. Um, the the America was designed as a uh, ship to to start to change the tide. So uh, she was um, put together under the Merchant Marine Act of 1936, and uh, was a very new modern ship for for her time. Uh, she was designed to um, put. This goes back to a time when. Um, all of these ships were floating ambassadors for their country. Uh, there was a great deal of national pride. Uh, people followed uh, the progress of the ships. They took pride in uh, their accomplishments. The ships were, uh, as I said, goodwill ambassadors. They uh, featured the best of, uh, of each country, the best of technology, the best art, culture, interior design, uh, food, 
And uh, the America was designed to start the ball rolling in terms of putting the U.S. and the U.S. Merchant Marine uh, on the map in terms of a competitor uh, on the North Atlantic. Let me let me interrupt. Uh, up until that time, it was really Britain which ruled the seas. You know, Britannia rules the waves, the Cunard Line, the White Star exactly. Line, uh, the Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth, and, of course, the Titanic. So all the great ships basically were British, although there were French ships and there were some Italians. Mm-hmm. But when, mm-hmm. when you think of that era of the, of the golden age of ocean liners, Britain is the ruler of the waves up until? Until 1952, <laughs> <laughs> when the United States uh, claimed uh, the prize for speed on the North Atlantic, which is called the, the Blue Ribbon. Uh, you're absolutely right. It was the Cunard line that dominated uh, uh, the waves. They were challenged by the French. They were challenged by the Italians and the Germans, but they remained supreme. And, and what hurt in terms of uh, American uh, passenger ships or ships in, t- in general was that we had had, prior to the age of steam, the best ships in the world, better than the British ships uh, in, in terms of the clipper ships. Uh, ah, we, yes. We, we clung on to those clipper ships a little too long, and the British surpassed us when it came time to the new technology, which was steam. Since we've got we three never, hours. We never really caught up. Since we got three and a half hours, why don't you talk about clipper ships? Because, I mean, in terms of great ships, all the way back to the one that's still anchored in Boston, the Constitution. Yeah. We, we won the war, I think, because the Revolutionary War, because we built great ships. Exactly, exactly. It uh, it really bothered the British that uh, uh, buyers from Britain would come over and buy our ships. Uh, we had the best naval architect. Uh, we had a lot of wood uh, and um, these ships. And as always with shipping, it's speed that, uh, that makes a difference. I mean, people want speed. Uh, and the clipper ships actually delivered. And aside from being beautiful, graceful, um, ships in themselves they were economically viable in fact they were more than viable and you said a moment ago that we stuck with them too long what 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 did you mean uh that um shipbuilders and the architects of the day uh did not want to give up or gave up reluctantly to the age of steam uh, we have Robert Fulton, who went over to Britain and uh, picked up some steam lessons from the British. But other than what happened um, with Mr. Fulton, and if, uh, we never really pushed into the new technology. We hung on to the uh, clipper ships until it was too late. Hmm. Now, why was that? Was that bureaucracy? Was it love of the grace of those extraordinary clippers? Or was it just because every generation has to kind of go away before a new generation and new ideas can come in? Well, I think that's part of it. Uh, you got to remember that those initial steamships were really uh, kind of uh, primitive. Uh, they had big paddle wheels on their side. Uh, they were prone to mechanical failure. Uh, they burned a lot of coal, uh, and they just were not impressive in terms of uh, Yankee shipbuilders. But wasn't who, uh, it just, wasn't it a steamship 
the great northern, I think, that laid the first mm-hmm. transatlantic cable connecting electrically and telephonically uh, Europe and the United States? It was, and the Great Western started out as a passenger liner and never quite made it. And so it was reduced uh, in the end to being a cable layer. Hmm. Uh, so the, the initial steamships, uh, as with any new technology, takes some working to make it better and perfect. And uh, our shipbuilders just weren't willing to, uh, to accept it at that early stage. So how were the British able to establish this incredible legacy? I mean, the queens and the, <laughs> the, the magic and the mystery of those great ships is just, it, it will never die. Yeah. Um, well, you have to remember, you know, it, it, obviously they're a maritime nation and uh, ships are, ships are uh, very important to the British. Um, and the other part has a lot to do with Samuel Cunard, who, uh, whose operating philosophy um, was to emphasize safety, to, uh, to not go out on a, on a limb with new technology, but to stay with the proven uh, technology of the time. And uh, had to be prodded really into uh, uh, spending money. He was kind of a tight guy uh, to, uh, to, to improve his ships, but he knew how to run a shipping company. And they, uh, the Cunard line, uh, remains supreme uh, all the way through, including to this day. I mean, if you look at uh, who's a survivor on the North Atlantic, well, it's the Queen Mary, the Cunard, Queen Mary too. Mm-hmm. I was very, very encouraged when I was uh, able to kind of borrow the Queen Elizabeth uh, II um, to chase a comet back in 1974. I was with the Hayden Planetarium, New York uh, uh, American Museum of Natural History in the Hayden Planetarium, and we literally borrowed her, put a bunch of people on, and sailed to uh, to uh, uh, Venezuela and uh, back. And we did star sessions on the top decks at night. And I yeah. got to tell you, Larry, it gives you an incredible feeling to be standing on the fantail, to pick yeah. up the telephone, call the bridge, and say, "Can you move her?" Five degrees starboard because the uh, the the funnel plume is obscuring the comet. <laughs> Which yeah, I did. You, can, you don't get away with that uh, on any other voyage other than that. Nope, nope. So so how come there became this big robbery if the U.S. was kind of lagging and lagging and lagging? Who were the visionaries who said, "Wait a minute, this is not fitting of a great nation. We've got to have a great maritime." Uh, service to to go with our our, our national pride. Well, there, there was uh, in in 1850 a gentleman by the name of uh, Collins who established the Collins Line and uh, an American ship and really ships gave um, Cunard a run for the money. Uh, as I said, Cunard was a, a tightwad and his ships were rather sparse. Uh, Mr. Collins came along and. Uh, Built beautiful ships with comfortable interiors, good food, um, and uh, passengers flocked, and, and they were fast. Passengers flocked to um, to Mr. Collins's ship instead of the sparse, um, tight uh, Cunard liners. And uh, Cunard really became very concerned about the survival of the company. Uh, the trouble with Mr. Collins was that... Uh, 
he was a little reckless with his liners. Um, it used to be back in the, in the days, uh, there's a lot of fog off of the Newfoundland coast. And back then, obviously, they didn't have radar. And, and, and captains of those ships, their philosophy was full speed ahead. Let's get out of this as soon as we can. And if somebody's in the way and we hit them, hopefully we'll pull, we'll pull, we'll pull through. And uh, Mr. Um, Collins lost a couple of ships that way. And that's all it took for people to leave his company and go back to Cunard. Uh, you didn't get to travel first class with the Cunard Airliners, but you got there safely. Hmm. And so that was the end. That was the last time that uh, for over a hundred years that the Americans won the, uh, the blue or bond. I think a lot of it had to do with, um, uh, government subsidies and, and back, you know, in the 1800s, uh, 1850s, 60s, 70s, we were really working to develop the West and steam trains. And, uh, we had a lot of, uh, things to, uh, to take care of. And we, interest in ships, was uh, was not all that great. Uh, we kind of left it to the foreign liners to carry, you know, the immigrants and uh, and do the majority of that. Uh, we did have one ocean liner called the St. Louis that uh, did a respectable job, but it was no no speed champion. And then in World War One, uh, we took as reparation uh, the Kaiser's fleet. Uh, of uh, of ships uh, and the Germans had a beautiful fleet before the war. As war reparation, uh, we took those ships over, but they really weren't. I mean, they were inside; they were redone to have an American atmosphere. But they were really German ships built in German shipyards and using German technology. So it wasn't until the America came along that. Uh, uh, all of that changed, and we started to uh, move on. Now, the other place was that uh, two gentlemen, uh, one by the name of uh, William Francis Gibbs and one by the name of John Franklin, who was the president of, uh, of the American flag uh, uh, liner on the, on the North Atlantic, uh, the opposite of Cunard for, you know, for the U.S. lines, decided to do something about it. Uh, their, their pride was offended that uh, we couldn't compete with the British, and they were determined to uh, uh, build first the America and then um, as a, served as a forerunner for the champion of the United States. Was this in the 1930s? 1930s, yes, early 1930s. Uh, that's when they developed their plan. So this was after the crash during the Depression? During the Depression, exactly. Now, that's um, astonishing. What gave people the moxie? Because the Depression uh, was huge. My, my, mm-hmm. my parents and my grandparents drilled into us, you know, don't waste this, don't waste that. You know, we used to live and we had a, you know, a, a, a bale of hay on the front bumper, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. How could these giants imagine they could get funding to build super ships for those days at a time when the country was destitute and people were in bread lines. Well, they didn't get their super ship with the America um, uh, because of the reasons uh, you just mentioned. Uh, The America uh, was a a midsized luxury liner 
compared to, say, the Queen Mary or the Queen Elizabeth, which, by the way, that the English were going through the same conditions over there, but they, the government decided to spend liberally on subsidies, primarily to put people to work. And I think that's part of the reason that when FDR came in uh, and uh, with a new Congress, passed the Merchant Marine Act of 1936 to not only rebuild the Merchant Marine, but also to put people to work. So that was part of the government. uh, So building ships and shipyards would put pipe fitters and steel workers and all kinds of of trades. Oh, all over. Not just them, but the people that furnish the ship, you know, people that make tablecloths and napkins and silverware and uh, you name it. Just about every state, um, well, not every state, but a great part of what went into this ship, it was an all-American ship. Everything that went into it came from the United States. So these ships really represented their national honor. They were, as you said a little while exactly. ago, ambassadors, and, and, and the Europeans poured treasury into them. And exactly. when FDR came in, he said, wait a minute, we could do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Now, the other part, and FDR would be proven right on this uh, later, these ships have always been good troop ships when uh, Ah, trouble came. Ah, yes. Talk talk about that. Well, FDR knew that things weren't going well in Europe, and uh, he knew we would need a troop ship. Oh, so he was looking ahead to insurance. So he was looking ahead to insurance, exactly. And then, in fact, that's what happened. The America... Uh, the day that the America slid down the ways and into the James River in Virginia, uh, the next day Hitler invaded Poland. Good. And uh, all of the um, traffic, uh, U.S. traffic, because we were still neutral at that point, uh, stopped. Uh, so the America was really meant to be a transatlantic ship. It never had a chance to do that. Um, and it had to, they had to come up with some quick cruises to uh, keep her working. Hmm. Uh, in those days, since we didn't have aircraft and the only way to get troops anywhere was by ship, mm-hmm. you know, you, mm-hmm. you could take 10, 15,000 guys across an ocean. Yeah, the, uh, it, with, with the, uh, the, queen, uh, the queens, that certainly happened. Uh, with the America, they they took eight thousand. Okay. So it went from a passenger ship designed to carry, I think, oh, maybe eleven hundred passengers, twelve hundred, and crew. It went to um, eight thousand. So things were rather tight. Hmm. I mean, the timing of them, you know, launching her, and then the next day. They mm-hmm. had to think about turning her into a troop ship. That was, that's a bizarre coincidence. Remember FDR said in politics, there's no such thing as coincidence. <laughs> that's a bizarre one. Yeah. So after we're, we're, we're coming up to the bottom of the hour here and we're, we have a break, a few minute break. Mm-hmm. And then when we come back, I want to talk, I, I want you to really get into the nitty gritty of how we got the SS America, which became the first real flagship of this young sprawling, soon-to-be incredible nation in the transition between the old world and the new world. Sure. So, okay, my guest this morning, and we also have some things with Radio with Pictures we're going to go to when we come back, because you have 
some pictures of the transition. There, there's a couple of pictures there showing the SS America when she was a, an ocean liner and then the same ship when she was converted to a troop ship. Mm-hmm. And I want you to talk about what's on her hull because that's particularly interesting. So don't mm-hmm. go away. Okay. My, my guest this morning is maritime historian Larry Driscoll, and we're talking about the loves of our lives beyond the women who are in it. We're talking about the great ships, particularly the great ships of the United States. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back on this Sunday night, 9th of December. Christmas is visible in the, in the front headlights. You can see it out there. Hope you're uh, getting your shopping done, not missing anyone. Naughty and nice and all that good stuff. My guest this morning is Larry Driscoll, who's a maritime historian. Didn't start out that way, but he's talking to us tonight about these remarkable technological devices, the largest things on earth made by men that move. Now, they're not the most powerful. The most powerful, of course, is the so-called Saturn V, which uh, took men to the moon, but it's not in the same class as uh, these ocean liners because it has to be smaller and lighter, and it's got one heck of a punch because it has to leave the Earth's gravity field and then come back. 
So uh, why don't you tell us a bit, Larry, about the uh, launching of the, in terms of design and conception of the SS America? Because of all the ships that I've kind of known about, the America, I have to tell you, is is one that I was really not very much uh, up on. Yeah. Well, you're not alone. Um, and that's why I wrote a book about the ship, uh, primarily because I sailed on her when I was younger and was really uh, fell, fell in love with her myself. And um, the, the other part is... Uh, uh, she kind of fell into the shadow of her, her big uh, running mate. Yeah, the big sister. So, but I, I got to tell you, it was really a, a loved ship amongst uh, uh, the connoisseurs of ships uh, that loved to sail American uh, because of her just comfortable interiors. She wasn't flashy. She wasn't glitzy. She was very comfortable. She had style, substance. Just a nice, easygoing ship, uh, something you feel very, very comfortable being on. So there were a lot of people that really loved this ship. Okay, so why don't we take a look at a picture? Go to the other side of midnight.com, everyone, and click on that banner, that beautiful banner, which shows her in color there in front of an old New York. Click on that banner, and that will take you to tonight's guest page, Larry's page. Scroll down past my items, and you'll see a black and white picture there, number one in Larry's items. The SS America in full regalia. I guess this must have been right after she was mm. launched. Yeah, right after she was launched. Uh, and be, you see the um, the American flag on the side of the ship. So that wasn't done for advertising. That was the way she sailed for the first, uh, what, year or however many? That was to let German subs know that oh. this is an American ship. Uh, this is a neutral ship. And don't try to torpedo her. Um, other ships uh, in the United States line uh, that were going be between Lisbon and um, and New York, uh, in one instance, uh, uh, a German sub uh, stopped the ship in the early dawn hours. It couldn't really see the uh, flag and the, and the lettering on the side and ordered everybody off uh, off the ship. Uh, lowered the life captain was Captain Manny at the time, the same guy that would be the captain of the America and uh, the United States. Uh, the German said, we're going to torpedo your ship. And Manning uh, kept talking to them uh, to buy time. And uh, as the sun rose, the German sub commander noticed that <laughs> uh, it was an American ship. Um, sorry we bothered you. And, uh, and they went on their way. So that's why that lettering is there. Who decided that classic, uh, uh, I think the term is livery, uh, white, black, and red? Mm. I, don't, I don't know. Um, uh, the, the stacks were red, white, and, and blue, and that's probably Mr. Gibbs, uh, because he was a naval architect that designed uh, this, those sampan-style um, stacks. really can't tell you. I think it was kind of the... Uh, the way ships were at the time, if you look at um, other ships, they're pretty much all same, same, same coloring. So if we go back to Radio with Pictures and we click on your second item, this mm -hmm. is the same ship now as a troop transport, and she's covered with a bizarre pattern. Talk about this pattern. Yeah. Uh, 
that was the promenade, promenade deck uh, where that is. And uh, those are life rafts. Okay. And the, so and, the, and the paint scheme? Paint scheme is uh, standard, uh, I don't know, Navy. Well, this was camouflage, I understand. Oh, uh, camouflage, yeah. And the idea was, in other words, they, I forget who did the experiment, but they found that if you put all this weird, uh, flashy, bizarre patterning on a ship, at the horizon, she faded. It almost became stealth. She oh, couldn't okay. be seen. Yeah. Yeah. Very bizarre. Very interesting image. It is. Yeah. So talk about how she came to be. FDR comes in. There's a huge depression. He's looking mm-hmm. for ways to put Americans to work. Uh, yeah. The Maritime Act was passed uh, three years uh, in, in, in 36. Mm-hmm. Take us through how this ship, the SS America, was designed, crafted, envisioned, mm-hmm. and, 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 and the guys who were behind it. Okay. So the guys behind it were uh, John Franklin, president of the United States line, and for the most part, Mr. Gibbs, uh, uh, W.F. Gibbs, uh, William Francis Gibbs. Uh, Mr. Gibbs, uh, this is really uh, his passion with ships. And he's an interesting guy because uh, he, uh, at an early age, uh, developed a love of ships. His father was uh, wealthy. And thought, and when uh, Gibbs told him, I want to be a, a naval architect, naval engineer, his father said, you're going to have nothing to do with that. I want you to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I want you to go to Harvard, and I want you to study law. So Gibbs said, well, okay, I'll, I'll go to Harvard, which he did. But he studied anything but law. He studied <laughs> uh, whatever courses he could find that were close to Naval architecture, ships, machinery, uh, you name it. And uh, when he left there... This was, what, the 1920s? I I believe so, yeah. Uh, Maybe a little earlier. And uh, then he uh, had to take up law to make a living because he couldn't get a job as a naval architect. Who's going to hire a naval architect that uh, doesn't have a degree? Uh, So he took up law, hated it. And uh, through some connections of, of, uh, that he had made, he met with uh, the great uh, uh, rubber baron, J.P. Pierpont Morgan. Oh, my. And uh, sold Morgan and uh, tried to sell Morgan on this idea of building a speed ship. But Morgan was so impressed with Gibbs and his brother that he gave them jobs uh, in his ship division. Now, this is the same Morgan – Unintended, who gave the shaft to Tesla? Who gave what? The shaft to Tesla. <laughs> he, oh. he basically <laughs> took away all well, his yeah. money. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a descendant of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Gibbs starts uh, getting in naval architecture. And, you know, when you're passionate about something, uh, you learn quick. And uh, he, um, his dream was always to beat the British by designing a um, superliner that would, uh, you know, win the blue, the blue ribbon. And uh, so the, um, his first real job was on the, uh, one of the German ships that um, we had inherited in terms of uh, reconverting that. Uh, and then as uh, he had a couple of. Uh, 
other jobs for for South American ships, ships that sailed from New York to South America. And then finally, along comes the America, and here's his chance to build the liner, to take the first steps to build the liner that he always wanted. And it that, gives, was it his uh, idea, yeah. or was it Franklin, or was it Roosevelt, who wanted a, a major flagship of the United States? It was his. He was the driving force. Gibbs. Yeah, Gibbs was. Okay. Franklin wasn't far behind, uh, but Gibbs was the major driving force. This was his. This was his dream. Um, so he built the America and, and and used the concepts that he would later use on uh, the United States. Uh, in terms of dis- of design, they, if you look at the two ships, fairly similar. Uh, and he used a lot of Gibbs had uh, a phobia about uh, fire on ships, and uh, a lot of the material that he used to build the America uh, was the start of fireproof material that would later wind up on the United States. So he practiced on the America for what would become the United States. Was there any particular incident that drove him to think fireproofing a ship was a really good idea? Like, did someone die that he knew on a on a yeah. that kind of thing? Yeah, I can't remember the name of the ship, uh, but there was an American ship that caught fire uh, and actually was grounded on the coast of New Jersey. Oh, uh, with a terrible loss of life in the hundreds. Oh my God. And uh, the, the, the standards were not what they should be, so the government tightened up on the standards. But uh, Why does it always take a disaster for people to learn? Uh, like the Titanic, it took a disaster for lifeboats and all kinds of other safety. I know. And, yeah. and with this ship, it, it, it obviously imprinted itself on Gibbs. We've got to make them fireproof so people don't die uselessly. Yeah. I don't, I, that's the way we are, I think. Hmm. As humans. Yes, humans, right. <laughs> okay. So would you say that it was Gibbs' connection with Morgan that basically gave him his shot? Exactly. That's how he got going. Wow. Now, Morgan was the guy that um, would uh, create the uh, – well, not create, but buy – the White Star Line, an English company, oh. uh, that uh, eventually would uh, give us the Titanic. Oh, my. Uh, Morgan tried to do with shipping what he did with railroads and steel, which is basically form a monopoly so he could make money. And uh, he bought shipping companies all over the world. Um, it, well, all over the world, mostly in Britain and uh uh, a few in Germany, so it's the same. It's the same Morgan, yeah. Okay, so Gibbs has this fantasy: a ship mm-hmm. that will be like none other, and mm-hmm. and he's got a kind of a, a, a soul brother in Franklin, the head of the United States lines. Right. And what do they do? Uh, well, they. Uh, couldn't get the superliner they wanted out of uh, the Merchant Marine Act of 1936. So they go, well, let's build something um, uh, that is not quite the same size, but something that we can learn from so that we can build our superliner uh, at a later time. And so oh, that's. Oh, so the America was their new haven before exactly. they got to Broadway. <laughs> Yeah, you got it. 
what made her different? Uh, her interiors, I would say her interiors. Uh, prior to that, there were two ships, uh, several ships uh, that were American, uh, but the interiors were kind of a mixture of uh, European Louis the Sixteenth, um, kind of uh, the area where you are, Southwest Indian style, with uh, moose heads hanging from the ceiling. Uh, oh my God! Uh, English Regency interiors. They were a hodgepodge of um, different styles, most of them foreign. And uh, Gibbs hired this uh, firm that was uh, made up of two women, but a larger firm than that, but the two principals, Dorothy Markwald and, and Urquhart, uh, decided that this ship would be American in style and spirit. They weren't going to have any foreign influence on the interiors of the ship. Uh, and so they went about designing a ship that uh, uh, some called it Hollywood modern. It was uh, a ship that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers would have felt very comfortable on. Uh, well, I remember a bunch of movies where they were on ships, and those were what, these German imports kind of Americanized? Because maybe that's where I developed my interest in, in ocean liners, because I would see okay. all these old movies yeah, with yeah. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing around on decks and ballrooms yeah, right. and all that. Right. So the, uh, the America, the America was a, a di- broke the mold in terms of the interior styling. Uh, these two ladies did it. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. You just said something interesting. This is an area of overwhelming masculinity, dripping testosterone. Right, right, right. How right. did two women get into a pivotal position of designing an American, a real American flagship. I mean, that in those days, we're talking now the 30s, that was almost unheard of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were the first to do it. Uh, they started out small. They were uh, basically uh, high society uh, decorators, um, uh, decorating the homes of um, of the wealthy. And in doing so, they... Did some off uh, did some office decorations for uh, the Grace Line, which was a South American company for the executive offices, and then the executives like that. They said, "Well, why don't you come and design our uh, our country clubs out on Long Island?" And so they did a good job with that. And then when it came time to design uh, their new ships for the Grace Line. These executives uh, told Mr. Gibbs, who was a naval architect at the time, designing the ships, why don't you check with these two women and see if uh, mm. if they might want to uh, decorate uh, our, our new Graceline ships. And so Gibbs did. Gibbs had no – Gibbs was a, a rebel in a way. I mean, he would he liked to break the mold. And uh, it didn't bother him one bit that uh, these were ladies, that uh, they had style. Wow. They had class. They uh, they had a learning curve because uh, buildings and houses and offices are pretty much square and flat. And, and they ships, don't move. And they don't move, right? <laughs> At least not, in, not anywhere but in California. Yeah. Ships are different. Ships uh, are built on a curvature. Uh, they're built to shed water so that uh, nothing's really uh, – flat or 
square on a ship. Every everything is different. Every cabin just about is is a different size because of the different ways the ship is set up. Uh, and so they had a hard time at first figuring all of that out. But once they did, they uh, Gibbs loved their work on the America and hired them to do the uh, interior decorations on uh, the United States. And we can get there, in a, you know, when we reached that ship. But they had a whole different bunch of challenges when uh, they had to do the United States. But well, you know, this is interesting were, because it's it's like you've just given us a, a flash history of two sets of pioneers, Gibbs himself and mm-hmm. the, and these two women, mm-hmm. proving it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. Who, who you know, yes. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he, he knew Morgan, and that's how he, he got his, his shot. And they knew uh, Franklin and Gibbs, and that's how they got their shot. And they knew the executives at the uh, Graceline. The Graceline, yeah. Yeah, from their past work, and uh, so. It, but once you uh, once you get there, you got to be good at what you're doing. Well, and yeah, they were. It only gets they you were the absolutely, absolutely first class. So talk about. The, uh, I'm I'm sorry we don't have images of the interiors of these ships, but tell folks what happened. You 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 lost a computer with all kinds of amazing images, and you can't um, find a way to retrieve them. We have some experts. Maybe they can help because that well, archive cannot go away. Uh, I'm going to try. Uh, the uh, hard drive is uh, not responding, so Uh-oh. I need to get it. I need to get it somewhere where they can revive it, and uh, I can get my pictures back. Yeah. Well, we I'm just open. happen to have a crewman who's listening right now that might be able to help you do that because I was kind of looking forward to having some images of the interiors of these amazing mm. vehicles, and then when when you said no, I have a computer problem. It's like, oh no. So. I'll tell you, tell you what, when you have a chance, go to my website. Okay. And uh, that was pre-computer crash. I think we have that listed. Do we have that listed here? I'm looking for your website. Okay. I don't see it. Kintia, do you, can you put up his website uh, next to his picture and bio? Because we can go and look at some of this stuff then in the next uh, segment. I presume you sent her the website by email, right? I did, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. She's going to go do that because these interiors, you know, it's one, this is kind of like, you know, the old joke about describing a spiral staircase without waving your arms. Okay. We we need to see the pictures. She says, ah, she says she's found it. So shortly and momentarily here, she's very good. We will have a link. She'll tell us when we can all refresh and then we'll be able to go. And at the top of the hour, we're going to be joined by our old friend and colleague on this show, George, uh, George Lambert who um, is going to be part of the next part of your story, which is with the SS United States. But I have a feeling she's going to want to be in on this part too, because we will continue this conversation past the top of the hour on the SS America. So these guys kind of started out with a clean slate. They wanted to Mm -hmm. break the mold, do something really different. Let's talk about, because that's one of my loves, let's talk about the technology first. What made the SS America different than the other ships of her era and time? Well, as I said, the interiors um, were the main piece. Uh, Speed-wise, she was pretty much the same as her contemporaries. Well, let's start with how big was she? Stem to stern, tonnage, you mm-hmm. know, uh, okay, boilers, yeah. uh, horsepower, that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Com- compared to contemporaries. 
Yeah. Um, hold on a minute. All right. She said she held so something was, like 1,200 people as, as as passengers when she was a passenger liner. Yeah, she had 11 decks. Uh, length was uh, 723 feet. That's no slouch. That's no slouch, no. Tonnage, uh, 33,532 uh, <laughs> uh, tons. Uh, it's called uh, gross tonnage. And gross tonnage is uh, a nautical measure of a ship size that's used throughout the industry back then. Uh, the tonnage is, it's really the interior volume of the ship. Uh, that's the best way they could figure out how to measure, you know, it, it's the volume of the ship. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to put, you know, a, a 35,000 ton ship on a scale. So they resort, <laughs> yeah. they resort to this formula. But it, so, okay. So, so she's um, a little over 700 feet long. What were, what were uh, contemporary ships like? I mean, how long were the German ships and the, the British ships, et cetera? Uh, over a thousand. For 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 the um, for the superliners, what I call a superliner, which is uh, you know the the top ships, mm -hmm. Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth, uh, the big the big German liners, uh, thousand feet is the norm, a little over a thousand feet. Uh, she put they put out six thousand meals a day in the kitchen. Good grief! Shaft horsepower was thirty four thousand. It's horsepower. Uh, speed was 22 knots, and that is um, 1.15 miles per hour, so it's not that much different. Um, so what else? We have fresh water, things like that, Kool-Aid. Yeah, so that gives you an idea of her size. So she was what's called an intermediate lighter. Okay. Well, Kinsey, in her estimable professionalism, has given us a link. So if you go back to Radio with Pictures and you scroll down uh, to Larry's items, there it is, Larry Driscoll's website on the America, and you click on that, which you can yeah, do too. Yeah, click on the America. And there she – oh, there's color. Look at that. It's like going in NBC from black and white to color. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that. Wow. So where do we go to see in some interiors? Do we have interiors uh, yeah. on this? We just click on the SS United States and the SS America at the top. And where does that take us? Take to the – go to the America. Oh, uh, the SS America underneath, underneath the United States. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, there she uh, is. There she is tied up, I guess, in New York. Yeah. And the tug's ready to push her out on the voyage. Okay. Uh, and uh, we're going to go down to SS America Interiors on the right. Okay, looking, looking, looking. On the right-hand side. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking. Okay, scroll too far. Sorry about that. Yeah, there she is. Okay. Okay, yes, yes, okay. There, ah, yes, yes. Right there. So the you top. see the, the Oh, my God, slide. look at that. That's oh, yes. Hand-painted... Uh, murals around the door oh that's like a like like a grand hotel in new york exactly it looks like the waldorf astoria yeah, yeah. the old waldorf <laughs> when i used to stay in the waldorf back in the 60s okay Look yeah so and if you a lot of Waldorf's, art deco exactly that's the word i was looking for art deco that was the style 
that the two ladies used, and you'll see them. Oh, down there below. they are, posed in front of her, Anne Urquhart and Darcy McMarkwald, Markwald, photographed yeah. by Wilbur Pippin, in front of their ship. Their ship, yeah. And Margaret's holding a, uh, Dorothy's holding a, uh, obviously a blueprint. <laughs> right. With the white gloves and the little hats. And yeah. Uh, now, was this taken in the in the 30s? It must be in the 30s. Must be. Yeah. Yeah. So all these pictures below that are all clickable, and there's even layouts of rooms and all this. So talk us through. We've got a few minutes, about three minutes till the top of the hour. Okay. All right. Um, let's look at the cocktail lounge. The one in the middle on the second row. Okay. Right next to the color diagram on the right. I think so, oh, yeah. look at that. Oh, look at that painting. Oh, that is so America of this era. Look at that. Oh, these are gorgeous. Yeah. So you're in the in the cocktail lounge, right? Yep, yep, yep. Okay. So there's a painting on the ceiling uh, done by a gentleman who did uh, drawings for the New Yorker. Uh, the, bank, the, the leather banquets, banquets are uh, green. Uh, the chairs are, I think, a dark, I don't know, dark dark brown, I think. And then the bar. And uh, and it's it's dark in there. It's not a well-lit room, but it looks like a nice bar in New York. Romantic. It's romantic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the dining room was uh, a jewel. If you look at the dining room, that's a larger picture all the way over on the right. Okay. I'll tell you what, we're coming up to the uh, top okay. of the hour, so let's hold okay. off, and Georgia right. will join us, and uh, we'll continue with this. This is, she was she was elegant. In fact, elegant. there's a exactly. line that comes to me from the Philadelphia story. Remember with Catherine Hepburn mm-hmm. and sure. uh, Cary Grant? Sure. And, and he, he gave her a, a yacht. You know, and or or she they 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 had a yacht, and then he gave her after they split. He gave her a little model, and she said it was Yar. Sounds to me like the SS America was Yar. Mm-hmm. Hold it there. You're on the other side of midnight. My name's Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, we're going to sail on the SS America, talk about her transformation into a troop carrier, and then. She went into all kinds of other lives, and then we're going to get to the super ship of the United States in the 1950s, the SS United States herself. So don't go away. We shall return. Thank you. 
other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone to the other side of midnight georgia lambert has joined us let me give her a proper introduction georgia has over 50 years of experience god that makes you sound so and you're not at all (laughs) (laughs) i started very young uh yes yes (laughs) well you know everyone who's a member of the show listener of the show audience knows you very well you're kind of our resident metaphysician and people are going to be scratching here and saying, why is Hoagland invited a metaphysician on the show to talk about great ships? And the answer is, you sailed, one of the few people I know who sailed on the SS United States. And when we get to that part of the story, we will uh, do that, you know, proper justice. But let's get back to uh, Larry and talk about this interior design. Now, you need to be in front of your computer to see some of these amazing images. The interiors, designed in the 1930s by two women of the American flagship at that time, the SS America, and uh, if you follow our instructions, which is you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on uh, the graphic for tonight's show on Sunday night, and that will take you to the guest page. You scroll down, past my items radio with pictures, to Larry's pictures or Larry's items. And there it says SS America, SS United States, sailing on All-American Team to Europe. Click on that and then go to Interiors in the SS America, and that will take you to where we are right now. So, Larry, let's continue with this kind of interior um, uh, tour because she's gorgeous. She's absolutely gorgeous. Well, she is. That's uh, exactly. That's why people loved her. So talk about in those days how people kind of fell in love with the ship. And whenever they went to Europe or they went to South America, they kind of hung out on the same ship. They developed a love affair. Um, they did. Uh, the um, Cunard line was always a, a big favorite uh, because of the, the atmosphere on the British ships and the quality of the service. Um uh, the uh, the America uh, had some tough competition in terms of uh, quality of service uh, and interior and setting the atmosphere. I mean, if you think of the French uh, ocean liners, uh, you walked on the gangplank uh, and boarded those ships, you thought you were in France. 
I mean, the atmosphere was there, the food, everything. Uh, and that's why people that went on to Paris love to take the French liners. Uh, the British uh, uh, ships were more palatial, uh, more uh, country manner type of styling. Uh, and uh, if you went on to Southampton, people would probably choose those ships. Uh, those are the ships that um, uh, a, a lot of Americans really enjoy traveling on. So the, the America and the United States had some tough competition in, in terms of um, uh, their, their, uh, their running, uh, running ships. So that's why these ladies uh, did an American interior uh, to make Americans feel comfortable. For example, they knew that 80% of the choices made by uh, the uh, people that traveled were made by the wives of the husbands ah. going on the trips. Now, so, back in those days, let me stop you. Back in those days, how expensive was it? And you're going to have to kind of equate mm -hmm. to current, you know, contemporary monies. But how expensive was it? Who were the people that traveled on ships? It wasn't the main middle class. It still was class uh, excursion, wasn't it? Well, it, 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 it was a mixture, but they were rigidly separated by class. Kind of like, the, you remember the Titanic? And oh, yes. How they yes. had gates, but you had separated people. That was the same thing. The America was uh, uh, had three classes, uh, tourist cabin and uh, first class. So uh, you picked uh, what you wanted based on what you could afford. In terms of price, I probably would be the equivalent of uh, traveling first class uh, on a... On a, on a Boeing 747 or a, you know, a Airbus 380 today, uh, first class, it'd be about the same cost. Equivalent of several hundred dollars. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be expensive. Hmm. Okay, there's a, there's a quote here you have on the page from Washington Post editor, <clears throat> I guess contemporaneously, Felix Morley, on the interiors of the America. Yeah. He says, to those who like dignity rather than pretentiousness, comfort rather than display, her size and speed seem no drawback. Having traveled on the larger French and English blue ribbon liners, I can testify that the slower and smaller American competitor uh, is easily the most attractive, both in decoration and the indefinable element of personality which every ship possesses. That's what you call falling in love with a ship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, look at these and images. And each one of these is clickable. You can make them full screen and just, just scroll down. I mean, this is a love fest. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is really amazing. Like, for instance, the first class line we were talking about it before, H-shaped room, dark and elegant watering hole, favorite meeting place before lunch and dinner, and equally popular for the after dinner brandy, Dark ebonized paneling offset by bright green leather banquettes and bar stools. Cream colored drapes kept out any offending natural light. Oh, we wouldn't <laughs> want natural light. Gosh, in a bar. Carved lucite columns shed a low indirect glow on the imbibing patrons. The illuminated ceiling covered by three amusing paintings depicting shipboard life by Konstantin Algeoff. Yeah, he was the... Uh... The New Yorker, uh, design, he did work for the New Yorker. Wow. Constantine did. And you've got page after page after page of these gorgeous illustrations. Oh, my gosh. Look at them. Georgia, what do you yes. think? 
<laughs> well, I also uh, sailed on the America. Oh, I didn't know that. You've been keeping yes. things from us. Well, not everything comes up in every conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you first uh, sail on her? We went over, the, the family went first class on the America. Um, it was probably in, let's see, I was 14. So that was probably 1962 or three, somewhere around in there. Uh, we sailed from New York to La Havre. And then uh, we traveled from La Havre to Germany, where my father was posted. Uh, so we went over on the America. And then uh, three years later, we came back first class on the United States. Oh, my God. I envy you. Oh, <laughs> gosh. The two great ships of this country, and you got to sail on both. What was it like to be a 14-year-old on a ship like this? Well, I have to say I appreciated the United States far more because I was older and much more conscious of what I was experiencing. Uh, going over on the America, um, I, w I remember uh, being terribly seasick and only finding solace in the pool where the oh. movement of the ship didn't bother me. Oh, because uh, the water would slosh at the same rate as the and would yeah. counterbalance. Yeah, okay, gyroscopic stabilization. There you go. <laughs> But um, I, I do remember um, uh, uh, the stateroom and uh, sharing it with uh, another young lady about my same age who was also traveling with her family. Um, and I remember it, it was interesting. I remember uh, being up at dawn and walking the deck of the America just as we uh, kind of cruised into Ireland uh, the edge of Ireland. And I remember thinking that, my God, the water is actually green. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as the, mo the, the most poignant of memories, I think, uh, on the America was uh, the wonderful dining experience. Yeah. Now, now, you have to understand that I grew up in a family where uh, – this kind of experience was pretty normal. Uh, I grew up, you know, at the Army Navy Country Club and and uh, going to tea dances. And, well, your and, your and your dad was some high official in the armed services in uh, in NATO, wasn't he? Yes, he was one of the original founders of NATO, which is why we were in uh, Paris very early in in 1950. Um, and I, I was too young to remember going going there. It was also by ship, but I think it was an American troop ship took us over the first time. Um, but the second time we went to Europe, it was over on the America. And uh, even with the kind of background that I was used to, I remember being impressed with the dining experience. Mm -hmm. it, it was absolutely lovely. Not only was the food exquisite, but in your cabin, you could order it and it would come to you. <laughs> At any hour of the day and night? Any hour of the day and night. Oh, my God. <laughs> so these really were floating first-class hotels. Like. Yeah, they were. Um, first class with a touch of a red roof in when you got to tourists. <laughs> 
So if Gibbs was so impassioned to create an American experience, how did he wind up looking out on the food? We've talked about the design, the interiors and all that. Uh, but how did he how did he select chefs? How did the, the line He did. Well, he I, did. I don't mean, uh, person, but I John, mean John John Franklin uh, raided every kitchen in New York uh, uh, from the Waldorf Astoria down, putting the best uh, chefs uh, on his ships, uh, the food on the America and the United States uh, was put together by a German with a thick German uh, accent, uh, Otto Bismarck. Um, hmm. What a name. And, uh, he was uh, chef extraordinaire. Yeah. Um, the uh, Talking of food, I, I remember uh, my favorite food was a baked Alaska. I just couldn't figure out how they could uh, put ice cream in a cake. I never it took me a while. Of, later years, I figured it and out. And then set it on fire. And then set it on fire, right? Right. Uh, but by the way, the America was the first ship to have a, a microwave oven. Really? That's uh, uh, that was the high tech piece in the ship. Oh my God! And they were huge in those days. Oh, they were. They were huge and expensive. Yeah. Well, well, well. So you could have hot food, <clears throat> not baked dry, at any time, Georgia, day or night, in your in your stateroom. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, absolutely. If it was two in the morning and and uh, we wanted tea sandwiches, we got tea sandwiches. Amazing, absolutely amazing. So let's go from this high point <clears throat> to what happened that when the war broke out. What did they do to her, and how how was she trans transformed? Okay. Um, they threw all of the interiors, these beautiful interiors uh, that we're looking at, uh, were stripped from the ship, the art, the furniture, uh, and, in re- and replaced with uh, uh, the first-class dining room remained the mess hall. Uh, but uh, all of the cabins, the uh, should, we, the should we click on the USS West Point for this? Yeah, why don't we do that? Okay. Because that'll show us her transformation. Oh my yeah. gosh! Look at that picture. This is an exterior, an aerial from obviously an airplane or a helicopter of her being transformed. Now, the, those are the um, uh, camouflage colors, and, mm-hmm. and so okay. So continue, please. Um, and in in the in place of the uh, comfort, uh, they put in bunk beds. They weren't really beds. They were pipe racks with uh, uh, canvas covers. Uh, they were tight. Uh, they were eight uh, eight uh, GIs. Uh, the bunks were eight 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 high. Uh, and in in the in the in the baggage holes, they got up to uh, nine or ten high. Uh, imagine being on the t- on the top bunk on on, on that in in, a, in rough weather. Um, they, they uh, put gun mounts, uh, reinforced the decks, and put guns um, at various spots throughout the ship. Um, and uh, basically, other than the interiors, it was the same ship. Hmm. I see a quote here on the right-hand side of the uh, SS West Point. Who, who decided to, to rechristen her the West Point? Uh, the Navy did. Okay. That's interesting because West Point is Army. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very yeah. interesting. 
Well, there's a quote here. It says, um, in a storm, the ship would flex. You could see yeah. it twist. Is that is that normal? Yeah, that was a, a quote that I picked up from one of the... Uh, yeah, Ken uh, Miller is a member of the crew. Ken Miller, yeah, Ken Miller. Well, it's true today with uh, container ships. Uh, there's a certain gift factor to them. Uh, to keep them from, uh, uh, so that is, that's fairly normal. Hmm. Okay. Here's another quote from a carpenter's mate, John Daniel. It was a great ship. There was just something about her. Everybody loved her. The crew loved it. The troops and the passengers seemed to love it too. It was the kind of ship you could say you were glad you were aboard that one. (laughs) That's the kind of ship it was. Yeah. Hmm. In May 1942, May 28th, the America received her draft notice, ordered to shipyard at Newport News for conversion as a troop ship. There was no time to gently remove the interior. Barges were brought alongside, and the fine furnishings and all that incredible stuff we saw on the other pages were tossed overboard. The color scheme Mm -hmm. was changed to navy gray, which quickly led to a new nickname, the Gray Ghost. Oh, yeah. Wow. Designed for 1,049 passengers, would at times sail with over 8,000 GIs. Comfortable suites for two slept 36. The ballroom <laughs> was fitted with bunks for 545 men. It was a tight mm-hmm. fit, narrow canvas pipe frame bunks stacked up to five high, provided bare 16 inches above the bunk above, from the bunk above. Horizontally, they were so close, there was hardly room to walk between. From mm-hmm. 1901 to 1946, the West Point completed 151 sailings, totaling 436,144 nautical miles. During the 56 months of war service, she transported over half a million passengers, never losing one, a record mm-hmm. for an American transport ship. Yeah. Wow. So she really was... was primarily responsible for, for the, our success in the war as part of troop uh, transport. Uh, exactly. Uh, in combination with the Queen Mary and the Queen uh, Elizabeth. Yeah. Couldn't have won the war without them. Wow. 8,200 troops. And it took probably, what, five days to get to Europe and longer to get to other parts of the mm-hmm. world? Probably seven to get to, um, to Europe because they had to zigzag. Ah. To, uh, you couldn't take, go in a straight line because of the German subs. But the one thing she had going for it was her speed. She was faster than the, the subs at the time. So that was an advantage she had. So this was her first uh, reincarnation as another ship. And since we're coming, you know, we got about 10 minutes to the bottom of the hour. Talk us through how she was transformed several more times in her mm. amazing incarnations okay so well she went back to being a luxury liner in 1946 uh the government uh, paid to restore her to original condition uh so she was um uh, just the way she was when she first was um launched so they the had saved all those incredible interiors to put back not in. all of them not all of them Aww. but most of them yeah they had warehouse not all of the artwork survived, but uh, yeah. So she resumed. Uh, she was her, her splendor came back uh, in 1964. 
the uh, Boeing 707s had taken its toll on ships, uh, and labor problems had created problems for the uh, for the America and the United States. So United States Lines was forced to sell her. They sold her to the Chandris Company, which is a Greek uh, ocean liner company, and uh, they had a contract to transport uh, uh, immigrants from uh, the United Kingdom and Europe and the Middle East uh, to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, the Australian and New Zealand government helped pay the way. Uh, so she did that for many, many years. Uh, and then uh, she fell on some really hard times. Well, they changed her name, right? They called her the Australis, right? The Australis, yeah. Uh, Chandra sold her to a New York company that did uh, uh, overnight cruises out of New York. And uh, they didn't know what they were doing. And uh, they bank- went bankrupt, I think, after the first voyage. Uh, Sanders took her back. She languished in Greece for many years. This was what, 1960s? 1960s. Uh, late, oh, no, 1970s. Oh, I'm sorry, 70s. Okay. 1970s, yeah. Uh, and then she was bought by some uh, a Thai investment group to be taken over to Thailand to May uh, Floating Hotel. Uh, and uh, that's where she met her end, uh, being towed uh, from Greece uh, through uh, by the Canary Islands uh, and hit a storm and uh, broke loose from the tug, crashed onto a beach on one of the islands, uh, split in two, uh, and that was that was the end of it. There's a tragic picture. If you go back to Radio Pictures again, go to the other side of midnight.com, click on the banner tonight for Larry Driscoll. That will take you to his guest page. Scroll down uh, in just above his items at the end of my items. Uh, there's a, a, a talk about this picture. This is so awfully, mm-hmm. awfully wrenching. It's haunting oh, to it see this picture. It's just, it's like seeing someone you've loved, you know, in their, yeah. almost in their coffin. Yeah. It's bizarre. Uh, it, it, um, that's when she hit the beach. Uh, and then the and, waves. And they couldn't tow her off? They couldn't salvage her? No. No, I think. Lloyds of London sent a representative in and uh, uh, said that's the end of the ship. Uh, And at that point, the islanders uh, scrambled on board and took whatever they could rip off, uh, throwing a lot of things overboard and pulling them on shore. Uh, And then gradually, over four or five five or six years, uh, the ocean... Yeah, by the way, let me interrupt and say, if you reload the page, Cynthia now has it in in the place where I would have expected it, and she just just moved it. So you now have two pictures in color of the SS America, and then in between, there's this tragic picture of her final demise. Was this Mm -hmm. when she was uh, sailing as the Australis? This This is when uh, she had been renamed. Ah. Uh, to um, I forgot what the Alpha Dross or something like that. What um, is the ritual for naming ships? I know we call them she, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. ship seems to have had more lifetimes than uh, I, I can't think of an appropriate analogy. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe you know your average kitty, uh, but what what goes into renaming a ship? The, uh, well, with the United with uh, United States line had a contest, 
and took uh, suggestions from people. Oh, and that's how they they named uh, that's how they named her America. Wow. So yeah, so the Lloyd's people said they're the insurance people, the big insurance company. They said there's no way to save her, and so she All just right. sat there. She's broken in half. The mm-hmm. forward funnel is is she's missing everything behind the forward funnel. Mm-hmm. God, that that's so wrenching to see that. So the uh, stern was the first to go, uh, just uh, pounded by the waves and eventually dragged back into the you know, so deeper she, water. So she didn't break her back grounding. They just gave her up and said she's going to sit here forever, and the waves took their toll. Well, she did break her back grounding. She, uh, oh. she hit a, a sandbar. Uh, that it extended its fingers out, you know, into the ocean, right. and and hit that right at the center. So she hit the the beach broadside with the sandbar right oh, in the middle. Worst possible so way. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's what broke her back. Oh And it's all gone now. She's been reclaimed, and it's a burial at sea. Yeah, yeah. So how many years total was she in service? She was in service. Over 30 years, I'm sure. My gosh. Because I remember when they were towing the Queen Elizabeth to the Far East to mm-hmm. turn her into a hotel, there was a mysterious fire and she burned mm-hmm. to the waterline. And it never was really explained. Something about, you know, acetylene uh, sparks or something when she was being refurbished. But I always thought it may have been just for the insurance because they realized they could never do what they wanted to do and make money. Mm-hmm. So they scuttled her in a very ignominious way, mm-hmm. unlike the Queen Mary, which wound up down in uh, Long Beach. Yeah, and that's a beautiful ship. You did a nice job with her there. Yeah, I've never been on the Queen Mary. I probably should do, go and do that someday. And I may never get the chance to sail on the SS United States that we're going to talk about in the next segment because we're now to the bottom of the hour. So we'll pick up the story of... Uh, uh, Gibbs and uh, Franklin and Georgia will talk about her experience on the SS United States and you'll talk about your experience at the age of seven gosh Larry you were so lucky <laughs> <laughs> so um, any 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 final thoughts on the on, on the America did Gibbs and company learn anything from building their 700 foot uh, almost superliner they did they did. Uh, they on the America, they, they, the bow was too short. Uh, so she, uh, when she was caught in a storm and uh, uh, going up and down uh, these big waves, she would uh, tend to plunge when she hit the bottom uh, and shudder. So he made the uh, bow of the United States uh, longer and slimmer. That was probably the biggest lesson he learned. Interesting. So he was learning all through this whole experience. He was, yeah. Wow. Well, I must say, you know, looking at that one picture compared to the picture above her, it's just, it, again, it's it's just wrenching. And how many, do you know offhand roughly how many ships die quietly at a dock versus how many die at sea, like in service? Uh, most of them are um, sold for scrap. Oh, my God. that's even more uh, ignominious. You know, they're, they're uh, pushed onto a beach in India or Pakistan and uh, ripped apart. Hmm. That's, how, that's how the, the France wound up that way. 
Um, that's how a lot of ships wind up. Wow. Okay, we'll hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, Larry Driscoll, maritime historian, and Georgia Lambert, our resident metaphysician, who's going to come back and tell you what it was like when she had grown up a bit from 14 to 17 to sail on the greatest ship in the world. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Speaking of ships, uh, how's that for a segue? I want to call your attention to what we've been offering now since last night to our listeners and audience around the world. We have a, a we have a video. We have a briefing that was created that has actually now gone to the President of the United States to a new generation of ships, spaceships, spacecraft, predecessors to the ships that will carry men and women if Elon Musk has his dream to the shores of Mars, the airless and sealess shores of the planet Mars. What I want you to do is I want you to order this video. You can get to it by simply clicking on the banners available around the uh, ship, i.e. around the Other Side of Midnight website. Click on that. That will take you to an ordering page. Get a copy. Look at it. Look at it with your family, with your friends, with your friends of friends. Then I want you to get on Twitter. I want you to talk to... President Donald J. Trump, who wants to make America great again. We may not be able to go back to the era of the great sailing ships, but we can go forward by opening to everybody on this planet the era of ancient, ancient history when we sailed the seas of space between the planets, when someone, and it was our ancestors, our models now believe, created what you're going to see in this video artifacts strewn across the planet Mars, some on the moon with suggestions of some other places to come because we're going to follow this up with other briefings. And I need you to all tell the president, for God's sake, pick up the phone, talk to NASA, tell them to get you the real images of the artifacts of a predecessor age, which are lying like in ruins, like this, this American ship lying once on a shore, stranded. There are artifacts like this to be seen by the spacecraft images sent back to Earth now from planets across this solar system, from Mars and from the moon. They just need someone who is a builder to recognize what's lying there. And if you do that, communicate with the president and he takes that step of picking up the phone and talking to his NASA to show him this data, then truly, indeed, it'll be part of the process of making America great again. And we 
are back on the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, December 9th. And so, Larry, let's swing now into the, the, the really amazing saga of okay. what Gibbs and Franklin learned from building the SS America and all her ups and downs of vicissitudes and operating as a troop transport and transferring to other carriers and the physical design of the ship in terms of waves and motion and all that. Let's talk about how the SS United States was conceptually formed and finally brought by these two geniuses to fruition. Sure. Um, well, they knew that uh, both gentlemen knew uh, that they had to build a ship that was faster than the, the last record holder of the Blue Ribbon, the Queen Mary. Um, Talk a bit and, about these ribbons, because and, and they're not spelled uh, like okay. ribbons. They're spelled like rye band, which I find interesting. Uh, yeah, Talk about word. this competition, yes. Yeah, uh, pretty much drove the, uh, the technology uh, because all of the shipping lines, it was a dog-eat-dog uh, world in terms of um, survival. Uh, and the company with the fastest ships uh, would, would draw the passengers. So it was uh, just a blue ribbon that they could fly from the top of top mass. Uh, okay, let me, real- let me stop you there and ask this very basic question. Why, if these were luxurious floating palaces where every need was catered to, every want, every, you know, the eye appeal, the decor, the ambiance, the people you were with, why were people so frenetic to get across the oceans as fast as possible? I think that's just the way we are. Uh, we, we, we love speed. Uh, it's not always a pleasant voyage. Uh, especially back then. I mean, they didn't have stabilizers uh, to kind of ease the ride and make it a little easier, a little smoother. Um, uh, These ships, uh, although when they got larger, became more comfortable, but especially if you get into a storm, it it wasn't always a pleasant voyage, and they they were anxious to get there. Uh, Many people were. Um, It's uh, speed rules. Uh, and it, it always has, and it was. It's the same with with these ships as it does now with uh, uh, with jet travel. Yeah, we all want to get you, there you fast. Possibly, we, you can't compare the two. In an airplane, you're in a tube and you want to get out as fast as possible. But these were yeah. floating islands. These were, I mean, a fifth of a mile. Why would people want to get off? As soon as they got on, I mean, that, that, to me, that doesn't make sense. There's some other factor we're missing. Um, if it is, I don't know what it is, other than our innate desire for speed. Uh, uh, and especially with freight, people want freight there sooner. Um, they want to get over there so they can enjoy the trip a little more, spend more time in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, uh, uh, we've we've always been. Um, uh, as human beings, we 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 love speed. So talk about this rivalry that was encapsulated in this in this prize, the the uh, blue ribbon, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. who won it and who lost it and what they would do to try to to, to take it away from their their rivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the Cunard Line uh, it was the winner overall, uh, and what the blue ribbon did was to push the technology so that it, that's what made these ships bigger and faster. 
Um, the other challengers were the Germans, uh, who gave the British a run for their money uh, in the late 1800s, and, and of course the French. Um, and uh, they would really, if you look at the, uh, uh, the Queen Mary versus the Normandy, two big, beautiful ships, uh, they competed back and forth uh, uh, for, for, the, for, this, uh, for this prize. Uh, was it, I guess you could say the best answer would be it was a point of national honor hmm. to have the ship that won the Blue Ribbon. It uh, showed that you had the best technology, the best of everything. And you would also attract more passengers. Interesting. Really interesting. Because I remember thinking, why would one ever want to get my, my, my first major <laughs> ship? I didn't want to leave. I mean, this, this became like a home away from home. And it was it was it was different. It was exotic. It was beautiful. It was yeah. of course we were on a mission. You know, we actually yeah. had uh, my my first cruise was on the Statendam that we borrowed okay. to basically go down and watch the last of the great Apollo spaceships leave Cape Canaveral. We literally yeah. anchored her offshore, and I had a bunch of interesting people on board: Carl Sagan, Isaac Asimov, uh, mm-hmm. Catherine Ann Porter. Remember, she wrote Ship of Fools. Sure. Uh, and we had uh, Burl Ives was with us, you know, uh, very famous uh, singer from the 50s and 60s and uh, right. so forth. And we saw this night launch of Apollo 17 climbing mm-hmm. up into the darkness and and, you know, people lining the rails as we're anchored. And we, we basically tried to almost, you know, tie the captain in his cabin because they kept delaying the launch because of problems. And he said, well, I've got to schedule me. I've got to go. And. Asimov and I were kind of plotting how we could waylay him so he wouldn't leave till the mm-hmm. till the spacecraft left. Fortunately, we didn't have to do that. <clears throat> uh, actually, Isaac wrote all this up for Playboy magazine. It's called okay. the ship. Uh, it's called the Cruise and I. And if you go to uh-huh. the archives for Playboy, you'll find a very funny piece by Isaac Asimov describing me putting getting him on a ship, uh, which mm-hmm. was impossible because he was he had agoraphobia. He he didn't like to be outside. And he never liked to travel by airplane or he would only travel by train. And so mm-hmm. to get him on a ship for the first time and then to get him to write something, which, of course, was his idea, was amazing. And so I didn't want to leave. Why would people on these incredible, luxurious islands of light in the mm-hmm. darkness in the middle of an ocean, why were they all hell-bent to get where they were going as fast as possible? doesn't make sense. Well- doesn't make sense, but let me tell you that we have finally got it right. If you take the Queen Mary today, they take their sweet time going from New York to Southampton and back. It takes a week to get there. Ah. And uh, so I think we fi- finally figured that if you, wanna, if you want speed, take to the air. But now ocean liners deliver, you know, take their time. Okay, uh, so actually, what, we, what we want to do, we want to now take people visually through the stories you're going to describe what's in this ship and how she was created. The SS United States, the flagship mm-hmm. of the epitome of, of, of Americanism on the seas in the 1950s and 60s. Okay. You go to that link right under your, your, uh, your name there at the top of uh, your, your guest page. Click on that link. Click on the SS United States. Uh, which is under the ship, the America there. I'm sorry, the United States. Click on that, and that will take you to the SS United States collection of amazing imagery. You've really assembled some astonishing 
images here. So how did she begin? When did Gibbs and Franklin say, okay, we're going to outdo ourselves? Right after World War II, um, they decided to build the ship. Uh, Interestingly enough, they didn't have enough money to do it. Um, By the time Gibbs uh, added up uh, what the cost would be, it came in somewhere around $78, $79 million. Wow. And uh, U.S. lines only had $25 million. Uh, so they had to figure a way to uh, get uh, get the, the balance. And so when you need that much money, where do you go? But you go to the government. And uh, they said, well, let's see if we can talk the Navy into making this ship um, a um, backup as a troop ship. Uh, and so and and so the Navy said, yes, we're interested because they had spent almost that much money chattering the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth in World War II. They needed a fast troop ship, so they needed speed. Uh, And so they said, we'll pick up the difference between what it would cost to build an ordinary ship versus an extraordinary ship, which has speed uh, and it has the safety feature built in. So needless to say, that created some controversy that... uh, United States line picked up. Uh, well, this was unprecedented for American ships, was it not? It was, yeah. Who yeah. had the Who had the vision? Was it Was it uh, Franklin? Uh, Gibbs always had the vision. He had the dream and the drive to do it. Uh, Franklin had uh, he Franklin was came just a little behind Gibbs, but I would I would give most of the credit to Gibbs. It was his baby. Well, when they came up short of money, who was uh, whose idea was it to go to the U.S. Navy and say, help? Gibbs. Ah. Gibbs had uh, done a lot of work for the Navy in World War II. And, uh, so they trusted they, him and he trusted them. Exactly. Wow. Okay, so... so when, that's, how we, that's how they found the money. That's how they got rid of the money problem. Uh, Gibbs, in the meantime, during World War II had uh, built uh, the technology to build, uh, put boilers in ships uh, that would make them move fast uh, it's using high-pressure steam, something nobody had done before. So he had developed the, uh, the engine technology to do it. Um, to build a ship and make it go at its fantastic speeds, he needed to make uh, the ship long enough and light enough to uh, to do that. And so he used aluminum throughout most of the superstructures, including the stacks. Uh, all the furniture was made of metal and aluminum, even the artwork. This had never been done be. before on, on, on a ship, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, shipbuilders uh, would have nothing to do with aluminum because they didn't think it had the strength to last over time. And, of course, they were wrong, and Gibbs was right. Did he use honeycombing? Don't know. Hmm. I don't don't know. Um, And then to meet the Navy's requirement for safety and Gibbs' passion to make things fireproof, uh, Gibbs would – everything was metal except for two things, Uh, the piano – in the ballroom. Uh, Gibbs wanted Steinway to build a um, metal piano 
What? <laughs> <laughs> and Steinway would have nothing to do with it. Good for them. Ah. And uh, the guys in the kitchen put up a fuss when uh, he wanted to have a metal butcher block, which, you know, that's, that's going nowhere. Right. So th- those were the two items that were reported to be uh, the only wood items in the ship. Everything else was metal uh, or a combination there. You know, not a combination there. Uh, it was metal, lightweight metal at that. The furniture. Uh, the big problem that uh, the two ladies had, and they designed uh, the, the interiors of the ship, they had to come up with flame-proof material for chair covering, drapes, carpets. Uh, all of those things had to be flame-proof. And Gibbs put it to the test. He built a, a cabin uh, uh, on a dock, uh, put all of the material in there, threw gasoline in there, and uh, set it on fire oh, to wow. see how how the furniture and the drapes would hold out when they did. Wow. So those are the ingredients that Gibbs put into the ship. Now, the biggest part was the engine. Um, the horsepower... And I'll I'll give it to you in a minute, but the the ship was a Ferrari versus the Queen Mary, which would have been more of a uh, a Bentley. I was going to say Rolls Royce Bentley. A Rolls Royce, yeah, (laughs) a little on the heavier side, uh, a big engine, but not fast enough. Uh, uh, Gibbs built the equivalent. Well, didn't uh, she uh, set the record on her maiden voyage? Oh, she did. She did. She went. Uh, uh, she went three days. And uh, by the way, uh, wait a minute. Three days between uh, New York. Uh, three, and- three, di- three days and uh, for three days. Hold on a minute. It was a record breaking around three days. Uh, uh, she hit. Uh, find it. I should know this by heart, but I forgot. Uh, three days, uh, ten hours, and forty-two minutes oh between um, Ambrose Lightship outside of New York Harbor and uh, Bishop's Rock off the um, south west coast of England. That's shorter than you can drive nonstop coast to coast. Yeah. So she flew uh, across the. What was her What was her top speed? Top speed was. And of course, in knots, and then in, in knots, miles per yeah. hour, and. Uh, let's go. Let's go about forty-four miles per hour. Really. Forty-four miles an hour. So, and going back to the weight, uh, she was the 50, about fifty-three, almost fifty-four thousand gross weight tons. So you can imagine the size of the engines and the power you needed to push that much ton. So she was almost twice the size of the America. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Gibbs had confidence he could scale up and do a whole bunch of other new things. She was new in all kinds of different departments, too, wasn't she? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Um, Now, they never released uh, information about her real top speed because of security considerations, mm-hmm. I, un- I understand. And the reason they wanted speed was not to get troops from one country to another fast. They wanted her to be able to avoid submarines, right? Yeah. I, I, well, they wanted speed 
to move move the troops quickly also. But yeah, to evade submarines, which um, didn't last very long. The subs picked up speed as as the uh, as time went on. Well, in '59, so we had first nuclear submarine, the, the yeah. Nautilus. So, yeah. and I think she could outdo the the United States underwater. I think. Yeah. Can you remember yeah. that number? There's a gorgeous picture if you go to the SS United States uh, section of of um, uh, Larry's website. There's a gorgeous view of her coming at you, bow on, racing mm-hmm. along. I mean, a beautiful, gorgeous black and white shot. From the Mariners Museum in Newport, that's a beautiful picture. Boy, does that embody yeah. what she was. Embodies a uh, power, speed, especially if you look at those smokestacks. Look at how big they are. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah. And then look at the little. Did you see the little cartoon on the right? Yes, the one that says, um, "Don't look now, dear. This is two British ships, I guess, mm-hmm. but I think we're being followed." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So on that first voyage in July, mm-hmm. July 7th, 7 1952, she cut 10 hours off the Atlantic speed record of the Queen Mary. Right. 10 hours. That's half, yeah. half a day. Yeah. Wow. But you know what's, what's amazing is um, she got, she, she, when she did that, nobody knew that she could do it. And it's interesting, one of the things I want to point out is that both Gibbs and uh, Franklin, in giving their uh, instructions to the captain, said, whatever you do, don't push the ship too hard. If you run in the fog, slow down. Mm. Uh, Don't try to beat the Queen Mary by very much. Uh, Save it because they'll put out a faster ship, and then we want to have enough speed to beat that ship. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> so, so that was the racing strategy. Captain Manning, once he was uh, clear of, uh, although both Gibbs and Franklin were on board on the maiden voyage, totally disregard, totally disregard. Were, were they on board or were they not? They were. They were. Okay. They were. He totally disregarded those instructions. Uh, they okay. hit fog, and uh, he called for more speed. Um, well, they had radar by then, of course. They had radar by then. Yeah. Uh, so that made the difference. Yeah. But he 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 broke with the owner and the <laughs> and the naval architect. <laughs> he wanted to bring home a, a, a prize that would be remembered for a long time. Well, go back to the blue Raband. Talk about mm-hmm. you know how it went back and forth, back and forth, and why it became such a prize. Because, I mean, it really just was a damn ribbon, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> it wasn't a cop. It wasn't a wonderfully engraved, uh, you know, Art Deco thingy. It was a ribbon. Well, in 1938, uh, contests became such a heated uh, event. They did come up with a cup. Okay. So the uh, the America, the United States is the last one to uh, last steamship. A luxury liner to actually win that. Where is that but, cup now, by the way? Because I understand there was some kind of stupid hovercraft right, that, right. that you know, quote, claimed the prize. And I looked at that on some site and I thought, are they kidding? Is yeah. that serious? Because yeah, no, it, no, that was uh, totally. It would be like having bantamweights fighting heavyweights. Uh, <laughs> ridiculous. No, no, 
those were the ridiculous rules that were set up, uh, and that's why it wound up having it. There's a replica at the uh, Merchant Marine Academy on Long Island uh, in their museum. Um, but when the, uh, the United States lost it, they had to turn it over to mm. this uh, d- dumb cameraman. Yeah. See, this is why I love talking about this ship, and I've done it several times. And I, I want to talk next, after I read this quote, I want to talk about your experience and then George's mm. on this ship. Okay. Because this is uh, Philip Dawson, who said back in the in the day, in the public eye, the United States embodied the energy and the optimism of her time and sleek mm-hmm. modernity of her time and the immense national pride of America and its peoples mm-hmm. in their definitive conquest of the North Atlantic seaways. Wow. When America was great. Yeah. So what was it like as a seven-year-old to be on this damn ship? And how did you get there? Uh, well, my father worked for the Voice of America in Paris. Uh, so that's how we wound up. Every uh, two or three years, they'd wind up paying for our way back home. So we would uh, travel on these ships. Uh, so that's how we wound up. We spent seven years in France. And uh, that's how I got to travel on the ships. Uh, in terms of uh, experience, it was much like what George has said. I mean, it was it was beautiful. We also were lucky enough to be first class. So uh, as a kid, I, uh, you know, movies every day, uh, food that you uh, really liked. Uh, Hamburgers the, uh, and fries or you know, something? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, the things I remember were uh, hitting stormy weather and uh, – uh, back then they didn't have, uh, those lateral stabilizers, stabilizers. Right. So the ship obviously would slow down, but it would still climb the wave, hit the top and then plunge to the bottom, hit the trough at the bottom and then start that all over again. And, uh, some of those waves can be, you know, 80, 70, 80 feet high. Good grief. And so... What we would do as kids, I remember, because they had linoleum floors, uh, would be we'd take our shoes off and uh, slide up and down the floor um, as the ship. Oh my God! Hit the top, you know, <laughs> on its way up, we would slide down the hall, and it's on its way down. We would uh, go all in the opposite direction, but you could feel the g-forces. You felt light on your feet as the ship rose. And then you could feel the weight of the G-forces pushing you ah, down. So you had a taste of microgravity. Is it? Is wow. It. So she really was a spaceship in in a sense. So, yeah. Wow. yeah. So they had ropes all over. Eating was an experience because well, you, you wouldn't have many people in the dining room. Uh, but they would, first of all, wet the tablecloth, which added some additional friction to keep the plates from sliding back and forth. Uh, and then the tables had this ring around them, like a, a ring that would come up around the edges, right? keep the plates and uh, the silverware from sliding off, although it always didn't work. Uh, so eating was, uh, was, was, was fun. I mean, as a kid, I don't think a lot of adults enjoyed it. But as kids, uh, we, we 
we we we had a good time. It sounds like a roller coaster. <laughs> oh, it was exactly. It was like having dinner on a roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> Georgia, I want people to go back to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's graphic for December 9th, Larry Driscoll, and your name there too. And that takes you to the guest page. Scroll down past Larry's items to the one item that I begged <laughs> you to give me for tonight's show, then click on it. There is an ingenue, Georgia Lambert ingenue, with her family. Talk about your experience and contrast it with when you were 14 and now you're this mature, svelte, 17-year-old ingenue standing with her dad and her mom and her little brother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a great difference, and I am eternally grateful that our trip uh, from uh, Germany back to New York on the United States was a completely calm and smooth one. Uh, I don't do well with motion sickness. And uh, Yeah, but you have uh, that trick, you know, dive into the nearest pool. That's true. That's (laughs) true. But uh, I was listening to Larry and thinking, oh, I'm so glad that was not part of (laughs) my particular experience. Well, at 17, you wouldn't have done that anyway, of course. No. Well, sliding around on your socks, though, that sounds pretty darn fun, I got to say. It did sound like fun, yes. (laughs) Yeah, and that picture, uh, that was taken at, at the Grand Staircase. Uh, they had a photographer there that uh, was set up for um, memory pictures if you wanted to have one. And so we had our, our family portrait taken by the ship's photographer there on the um, the landing of the, the grand staircase. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, in those days... Um, even on, on land. And, uh, I'll tell you what, we're place. at the top of the hour, midnight, the witching hour. We're going to open our phone lines when we come back. My guests this morning, Georgia Lambert and Larry Driscoll, and we're talking about being on an amazing, an amazing vessel, the SS United States, the flagship of the United States when, when the, uh, well, when the... Uh, Let's go out on this, okay? We shall return. and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. 
Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. In honor of a ship designed in part with the assistance of the U.S. Navy, the flagship of the United States Maritime Fleet, the ocean liner, the superliner of the world, the SS United States. How much, Larry, did the Navy benefit from their investment in Gibbs and uh, Franklin's? How much? Uh, it was never used as a troop ship. Um, it could carry 15,000 troops. Um, thankfully, they never had to use it. So the, it was more of an insurance policy than it was uh, anything else. Um, yeah, that's about it. Did they invest in her also to test out new technologies for aircraft carriers and destroyers and frigates and cruisers and all that? I mean, she was she was one of a kind. Well, she was. Um, I think most of uh, the technology was picked up during World War II, where there was a fantastic uh, advance in terms of steam technology uh, and engine technology that went into destroyers and aircraft carriers, uh, mostly uh, as a result of Mr. Gibbs's uh, work. So I think by the time she was, she was pretty much state-of-the-art technology-wise, um, in terms of her propulsion plant. Um, yeah, you were going to give us some numbers. She had some uh, extraordinary, almost miraculous power. She had, what, four boilers, and she, four, sliced, she sliced through the water at almost uh, 40, 45 miles an hour. Yep. And she, was, she had this incredible horsepower. Yeah. Um, it was almost like a speedboat. She would hunker down... Uh, as she dug into the ocean, and uh, uh, you could feel the you could feel the the bow rise as uh, they put the uh, put the full full power on her. Um, let me see, 2,000 troopship capacity, shaft horsepower, 240,000. Oh my God! So now there's a were... rumor. There's a rumor out there, Larry, and I I've got to check with you because you're the guy. You're the expert. I heard that at some point in her life, some guys actually water skied behind the SS United States. <laughs> Is that true? No. Oh, darn. <laughs> uh, I've never heard that. And I would think it would almost be impossible, considering the wake that she had. Uh, to do that. And, you know, it'd be a long toll line, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's all kinds of daredevil. Look at Evil Knievel. I mean, 
if she was that yeah. fast, I can't imagine some young Navy guy, you yeah. know, thinking, hey, I can set a record. You know, this is before, uh, you know, what's his name's uh, book and all that. So, Georgia, yeah. what was it like to be on the SS United States as a young woman coming of age, surrounded by <clears throat> other passengers, lots of whom were men, boys? <laughs> well, I think probably the best thing that I can tell your listeners uh, in terms of how they can relate to this is if they saw the movie Titanic, there were a lot of parallels. Are we talking the, uh, the original or the modern version with the, uh, Cameron? The modern version, the modern James version, Cameron, the, okay. the Cameron version, yeah. yeah. Um, when you boarded the ship, it really was like a big party. I mean, there was music and 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 you know, people being busy and waving to each other. I mean, there really was that sort of, uh, both in coming in and leaving Harbor, um, there was that sort of celebratory quality in the air um, that made it really special. It wasn't like just, you know, getting on something to go somewhere. There was There was something really special about it. And of course, those were the days when you know, you dressed appropriately for different occasions uh, uh, during the day. I mean, you had morning clothes and afternoon clothes that were different, and you dressed for dinner. Um, one time on on uh, the United States, we uh, had uh, dinner at the captain's table, and that was really special. Um, you know, those were the days when women still wore fur, oh you know. Oh, my God. Which, Real fur. Which, Real yeah. Real fur. That picture of of my family and I—you can't really tell it from the picture—but that that um, coat my mother was wearing is a black mink. <laughs> and oh, and how course, posh! Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what we wore. The dress that I was wearing was white brocade, and and uh, um, you know, you didn't wear long gloves for, for dinner, mm. but you did you know, for dancing. By the way, Larry, uh, not to interrupt Georgia for a second here, but do you know the definition of the term posh where it came from? No. You're kidding. Georgia? No. no. Oh my God. I know something these guys don't know. I feel so thrilled. <laughs> it stands for port out starboard home. And it was how you were assigned cabins. If you were a smart nautical sailor on the Queens, going to and from England at the heyday of the great ships. Port oh, out to starboard home, posh. And it came to be the, 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 the elegance of the best of the best, the creme de la creme, et cetera. Port out starboard home, posh. All right. Wow. So can I ask Georgia a question? Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Georgia, you remember those uh, Bon Voyage parties? And uh, departure from the dock and oh, sure. throwing, uh, throwing the uh, confetti overboard and the streamers. Those and streamers then, were amazing. They came in, in little sort of donut uh, containers right, and, and right. you threw them out. And they just just like in Cameron's movie, quite frankly. And, and uh, go ahead. Oh, well, just the parties in the, in the staterooms. Uh, from from friends that came aboard to see you off, uh, the champagne flowed, the caviar came by. I mean, it was uh, it was one big party. 
So even yeah. though you were racing across the Atlantic at almost, uh, you know, hot rod speeds, you were in an ambiance where everybody enjoyed to the max the experience of being on a little world moving through the night on a huge ocean. Oh, yeah. I can I can remember, you know, some of my favorite times were um, late in the afternoon, sitting on the enclosed deck in those lounge chairs, being served cups of bouillon, hot hot bouillon. Uh, I remember that very distinctly, and and also um, uh, at dawn, you know, when when most of the revelers had gone to bed, and and you would walk on the on the deck and. And uh, on the inside, there were the last vestiges of last night's party being cleaned up. And, mm. <laughs> and uh, you know, those, those sorts of moments are, are sort of like mental snapshots that you always keep with you. Yeah. Well, on your website, Larry, you've got on the right-hand side again, the ship, a look inside, dream to reality, first, second, tourist interiors, the dining experience, remembering the U.S. Where should we go look? What do you want to talk about? Well, look at the dining experience. That sounds. Georgia was just describing it. Did they have yeah. multiple, multiple? Oh, look! Oh my God, Georgia, click on that. That's gorgeous. Look at that. The captain's table. Yeah, we got to do that one one of the evenings on on the on the um, return. Now, how was, was how was the privilege of sitting at the captain's table determined? I mean, your dad was a high mucky muck in in NATO. So I imagine it was kind of de rigueur that you would be invited. But how did ordinary passengers get invited, Larry, to the captain's table? I don't think they made it. Um, the uh, it, the uh, captain would get together before a voyage. He would have recommendations from uh, headquarters uh, to um, of uh, forming the guest list. Uh, he would also have uh, the head steward come uh, before the voyage and uh, they would make a list of uh, who to invite uh, to the captain's table. But it was uh, a select circle. Not everybody made it. Uh, uh, but it's the captain's decision. And it was probably, as one captain said, it's the worst decision that I had to make on the whole voyage. They just didn't like doing it. Here's a, here's a quote from a guy named M.S. Kinney Teal. I commented to the waiter that the cream of chicken soup was good enough for dessert. He smilingly served me a second cup with my dessert. (laughs) (laughs) It was like being in a palace, recorded the ship's historian and frequent passenger, Frank Bernard. One magnificent room led to another with six meals a day. Good grief, Georgia. How come you didn't swell up like a balloon with six (laughs) meals? Look at that slim ingenue. From breakfast well, to late night buffet, he recalls you could kill yourself eating. <laughs> this is true. But I was an athlete in those days, so it didn't bother me much. Well, you were fencer. You actually fenced, I believe. No, that the, the sword play came later. Those oh. days I was a I was a gold medal level skater. Oh really? In, oh my in my. Germany. I, I skated competitions in France and Germany. The things I'm finding out tonight. My gosh. Uh, talk about the celebrities, because this was really the only way to get to and from Europe. So, Larry, talk about who sailed on this magnificent uh, Queen of the Seas. Okay. Um, well, Marlon Brando, for one. Um, Walt Disney. 
Uh, we had a couple of presidents, uh, Dwight Eisenhower and Harry Truman, in their retirement years sailed on it. A couple of future presidents, uh, John Kennedy uh, and uh, Bill Clinton, uh, going over as a student uh, to start school at, uh, in Oxford. Um, Marilyn Monroe, Salvatore Dali. Um, those are ones that I can think of right now. My God. Oh, do you, did you have any celebrities, Georgia, on your on your voyage? No, I don't think so. I mean, if they were, they were so remote that didn't register at all. Um, you know, it, uh, again, uh, equating it with something that your listeners could could uh, equate it with. Um, I remember, um, you know, on on Cameron's movie, he he distinctly showed the difference between the first class and steerage. They used to call it steerage, I think, mm-hmm. in those days. And I remember um, on the United States coming into New York and seeing the Statue of Liberty for the first time. And I remember consciously thinking of the people below me on that ship that perhaps had spent every cent they had for that journey. And I was coming home to something familiar, but the people under me, many of whom were coming to something completely new and unfamiliar to start completely new lives. And I remember that made quite an impact on me. Wow. Coming to America. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And sailing past the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your, uh, what, what's the full quote? Can you remember it? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Yep. That's the one. Yeah. And, you know, those were the days, those were the days uh, in in the 60s when Kennedy had been assassinated. Uh, the wall had just been up not not that long. Um, it was the height of the Cold War uh, and things were very, very, very tense. So coming back to America was uh, much more meaningful than, um, you know, it is now for sure. Well, it was it was an entree in the style of the period that that befitted where you were going, and what you were going on. Exactly. I mean, if people again refer to the Titanic movie, you know, the decor was uh, Victorian and Edwardian, and of course, the United States was Art Deco. But it was it was similar in feel and quality, even though the outer forms were different. The inner sense of it was probably quite the same. Hmm. Larry, I, I I forgot to do this earlier, and I want to do it a couple of times before we end the show. Talk about your book. Plug your book. Tell people how they can get it, because this is like a window into a period in time that has vanished of elegance and stateliness and a, a yearning for a future and and the embodiment of it in this incredible vessel that was the epitome of everything America stood for or thought she stood for. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, click on books, that last tab on the, at the top of the page. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get out of dining room here. Yeah. And just go up a little. You'll see a tab for books. 
Yeah, on the on the far right. Yes, yes. So yeah, far right. Click on there. Oh, look, there's several. You've been prolific. So that's uh, and then down below is uh, Glen Cannon Press is the publisher of the of both books. Okay. Uh, the America went into its second printing and uh, it's out of print. So you can usually you can usually you can pick up both of them also at um, Amazon. Mm, super well, of course, Amazon. The non the, the, the everything you know, nonstop shopping at Amazon. Okay, yeah, let me the, let me go back to dining because I wanted to apropos of something that uh, George has said. I wanted to uh, do a quote here. Where are we? Dining experience as United States. Okay. Um, there's a, there's a super quote here, which kind of shows you the era that you were living in. Um, you have in the last great race in your book, Larry, which people can pick up by clicking on books and all that good stuff. A passenger asked the waiter to wrap up her leftover steak for the dog. The waiter took the food away, but reappeared several minutes later, carrying a fresh steak on a silver platter for the dog. Yeah. (laughs) That service. (laughs) <laughs> Interestingly, we brought our dog over and back <laughs> oh, really? on the America and the United States, yes. So they yeah, were we they were an animal friendly <laughs> ship as well. Oh yeah. sure. Sure. Yeah, we had a red Irish setter we brought back from France uh on the United States. They uh, received uh first class uh, treatment also. They did. They did. We had uh, uh, going over, um, we had a a, a standard poodle and uh, and then on the United States, we brought a a very recalcitrant beagle. (laughs) (laughs) And the beagle was not happy being on the ocean. The beagle was not happy. No. (laughs) Okay. I just clicked on the passenger experience. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about that because you've assembled some very interesting images here, and you've got you have you have a, a day at sea excerpt from the SS mm-hmm. United States daily program. Uh, looks kind of intriguing. What kind of entertainment? I mean, you had full orchestras, right? Uh, yeah, Mayor Davis uh, Orchestra. It was a society orchestra, so they had dancing every night uh, uh, in in all the all the classes. Um, they had, uh, you know, the usual games, movies, um, shuffleboard, so, oh, you got it. shuffleboard, uh, table tennis, um, uh, they had a beautiful library, uh, in the front of the ship. Um, and, uh, just, I think, you know, as a kid, I remember just exploring the ship every day and seeing how it worked, uh. Was a fa- was a great experience. Well, the cliche that these were floating cities is not a cliche because they really were. They were, yeah. And the and, only way really to get to and from Europe and and the rest of the world. Yeah. So what did them in? You you talked briefly about the seven oh seven. What was the impact? Mm-hmm. We've got about uh, uh, you know maybe an hour an hour maybe a half an hour a little more than to talk about what happened to this incredible you know, uh, flagship of the U.S. And, mm-hmm. and, and she still is around. She still is alive, but exactly. barely. So let's talk a bit, yep. uh, you know, between now and the bottom of the hour. How, where is she now? 
How was she retired, and how can this audience help save her and restore mm-hmm. her to former glory? Mm-hmm. So she spent uh, quite a few years uh, in Newport News, um, Virginia. Now, wait, 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 when, when was she formally retired from service, and how did 19, that happen? Talk about November, how that happened, okay? November of 1969. Um, the, uh, Do you remember the date? No, but I can find it. Okay. Uh, the uh, ship sailed into New York. Uh, no one knew uh, that uh, uh, what was coming. Uh, United States Line had been purchased by a conglomerate uh, who knew little about uh, shipping and uh, just wanted to make money. Had no sentimentality towards uh, the United States, as John Franklin had. It was really, you know, his and Gibbs' baby. Uh, Gibbs had passed away maybe uh, shortly uh, before this. Uh, And so Franklin had uh, been, the United States line had been bought out by this conglomerate. Uh, They quickly decided that uh, we don't want to keep this ship. It's a money loser. There's no way we can turn it around. Um, They just wanted to get into what was coming of age at the time, which was container ships. And uh, they felt that the ship had uh, siphoned off too much money from the development of container ships. This is in they, the same year that America goes and lands on the moon. Yeah. And I was with CBS in Cronkite. And because I couldn't get the United States, I, I, I can bail my production crew and the executive producer and all that to let me go and scope out the Queen Elizabeth II. Mm-hmm. moored there on the west side of Manhattan. We did a site survey. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. plan was to put a remote satellite dish and sail her to the middle of the Atlantic <clears throat> and rendezvous with a guy named Thor Heyerdahl, who was sailing from mm. Africa to the United States in a paper boat recreating wow. a thousand-year-old voyage no from kidding. Africa to the Americas, and everybody had worked it all out. The satellite had worked. I got NASA involved. They were providing wow. us with a satellite dish. They flew guys up from Goddard to New York with the the, the, the canard line. Loved the idea. And my mm-hmm. my, my my vision was we would take a, a camera out into one of the uh, uh, lifeboats mm-hmm. uh, and photograph her together, the queen, all lit at sunset mm-hmm. with this little paper boat right <laughs> beside her, beam up by satellite down to New York and then to the world to show the evolution during the night that Neil and Buzz walked on the moon, the yeah. evolution of ocean liners and early primitive spaceships into the grand voyages of future interplanetary ships and starships to come and it all was set to go, and then Heyerdahl called us from Africa and said, I can't do it. It'll ruin my science. So he backed out. <clears throat> Tragedy, because it would have been such a vision. It would have made so yeah, uh, real to people the fact that ships, as Arthur Clarke said, have been known forevermore. They will be ships of space and not of the high seas. Yeah. What dreams may come. So in that year, 
when I couldn't do what I wanted to do, this company took her, took the uh, mm. the United States lines over, and yeah. then they basically, when she docked in Newport News, what happened in November of '69, uh, which by the way was simultaneous with the Apollo 12 mission landing in the sea of storms on the moon with Pete Conrad at the controls. So the um, the, the U.S. Uh, Maritime Administration took the ship over. Uh, holding it for the Navy in case they still wanted to use it. Uh, they had a skeleton crew that uh, kept the basic uh, life support systems of the ship uh, going. Uh, and that lasted uh, a few years. Uh, then uh, it was put up for uh, sale. So she just sat for, there moored at the dock for years. For years, yeah, yeah. They tried to sell it. Uh, they tried to turn it into a uh, hospital ship, uh, but the Navy wasn't interested. So then they wanted to sell it. And uh, actually, the people that uh, uh, the Norwegian cruise line uh, took a look at it. Uh, and instead, they bought the France, which had been uh, ah. mothballed. But uh, that's the ship that turned into the, you know, the future Norway. Um, I don't know if you remember that one. I remember vividly, yes. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, nobody wanted the ship. Um, it was just too much horsepower for it to be a cruise ship. Um, and so a real estate developer in Seattle purchased the ship with very little money down and a big mortgage to the U.S. government. And the um, first thing he did was to sell off all of the contents of the ship. And that was my last time on the ship. I went down to the auction in Virginia, uh, which lasted uh, several days just to unload everything. What, what year was uh, this? Uh, I got to look it up. Okay. I got to look it up. It's probably at least uh, a decade after she was retired. At least, at least, yeah. at least. You're talking about artifacts. Um one of the things that I saved, I, I uh, saved my stateroom key as a souvenir oh, from that really? ship. You still have it? Uh, it's somewhere. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've had several moves since then. So um, um, do me a I favor. Know those when, you find it, when you find it, take a picture and we'll post it, okay? I, I don't know even where to look anymore. I just remember saving it and having it for quite a few years. Serendipitously, it will come to you. After tonight, <laughs> it will come to you, okay? By the way, we have a number of people who are lined up to talk to you, Larry and Georgia, at our phone number, 917-889-8802. We have a New York caller we're going to go to first when we come back. We're coming up to a break at the bottom of the hour, and... Uh, you know, this is heartbreaking, Larry, because she was she was one of a kind. She she so represented who we were and who we are and who we need to be again. Every yeah. part of her was the United States of America. Exactly. She was made in America. She she exemplified a made in America back then. Yeah. And I'm surprised that uh, after Cameron's movie came out that you know, there wasn't enough public support for having that kind of experience again, you know? Well, you know, I know a certain guy, he happens to be president of the United States. He's got a few dollars here and there. 
If he really wanted to make America great again, Donald, are you listening? <laughs> All he has to do is put a few shekels into rebuilding this ship the way she was, maybe better with satellite and computers and all that, and send her around the world as the best ambassador of who we are one could possibly imagine. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the last half hour on this Sunday night for another week of The Other Side of Midnight. Next week, well, we're planning a couple of surprises, so I don't want to give anything away. I do want to remind you, pick up a copy, speaking of the president, of the uh, president's briefing of what's waiting in the solar system to make America really, really, really great again, if we're the ones to unveil it. Remember, there's a lot of other countries on this planet, some of which would love to upstage us that way. Get that video, watch it, watch it more than once, tell your friends, then get on Twitter and tell the president, if he really wants to make America great again, that's the way to do it. Put us at the head of the world in unveiling the real history of the entire human species laid out in images sent back by our own, his own, NASA. So now we're going to go to the phones. We've got a caller from New York City, area code 212. You are on the air. Sign in, please. Thank you for having me on the show. This is Robert Morningstar. I've been listening to Mr. This. Morningstar. How are you? Listen, I'm, I'm five by. Yeah. Um, I heard your question about uh, the USS West Point, and that mm-hmm. the answer is during World War II, Army, uh, Army troops and transport ships um, 
they were under the aegis of the U.S. Army Logistics Corps. And I know ah. this because my father was a merchant marine captain, and in World War II, he was with the U.S. Army Logistics Corps. The other point uh, I wanted to make was there was um, another ship called the USS, uh, the, U- the SS Constitution, and I don't think it was a Cunard ship, but I remember seeing it, and I think she had a sister ship called the SS Constellation. And um, the, the other item I wanted to ask uh, uh, Mr. Driscoll was, is he aware of the insurance scam that was pulled with the sinking of the Titanic when they swapped the Olympic for the Titanic? Mm. If, I open the pot, if I open the pot, you can all hear Larry. Sorry, Larry, go ahead. You may need to start oh, okay. over. We didn't hear the first part of your, your response. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I'm not aware of that. Oh, it's a very interesting story. The um, The Olympic was damaged, the sister ship of the uh, Titanic, and uh, launched mm-hmm. about a year mm-hmm. before. And it had a terrible uh, collision with a, a Royal Navy um, warship called the Hawk. Um, the Hawk impaled itself into the rear section and damaged the uh, propeller shafts and the ships mm-hmm. sailed sideways. And so what they did is they took both ships up to um, uh, Belfast where they were built and in the middle of the night they pulled them out and they swapped them and they they changed the name. Really? In or- yes, in order to oh. collect the, the insurance. Uh, your friend, our friend, Mr. Morgan had built the Titanic for $5 million and he insured it for $12 million. Mm-hmm. And it was a very mm-hmm. strange story when I heard it. So I researched it and I got some pictures, underwater photographs taken by Bob Ballard of the bow. And in mm-hmm. the, hundred, the hundred years since this thing has been deteriorating, the metal plate that they had bolted on with the name Titanic uh, has fallen uh. off, deteriorated. And I found an M. And that proved to me that it was the Olympic. It's a fascinating oh story. Oh, my God, Robert. Wow. Yeah. That's, and that's that, such evidence. That's such – you know I love evidence. Uh, yeah. It, that's it, incredible it was, evidence. I was, in, I, I was uh, dubious. And, uh, but the oh, story, I, I have this story. I've been dubious for years, and you've come up with a yeah. brand-new piece of data. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, there's no M in Titanic. But I was wondering, do you remember the USS uh, Constitution? And I think the sister ship was Constellation. And uh, I saw them here in New York Harbor. I saw all these ships. I used to go down to the docks. I lived in Hell's Kitchen, and it was a short walk, a couple of blocks to just okay. you know, the dock. I, so. I, I do remember them. It was it was the Constitution and the Independence, right? Oh, the Independence, right. That's right. What what was the yeah. shipping line? American American shipping line? What I don't remember. American the, export. American, American export lines. Yes. Right. Yeah. Boy, they were beautiful. I passed uh, all of oh, them. They I, were. I used to take free rides on the Staten Island ferry, and I uh, even saw the Mauritania. <laughs> I have a picture somewhere in my archive, and we'll probably put it up because I'll find it after the show, of course, for the Club 19.5 members. But there's an aerial shot, uh, guys, looking up. The Hudson from south toward the toward the uh, George Washington Bridge, and you mm-hmm. can see all of these ships lined up in oceanic oh. row at all of these terminals, oh. everyone including the United States, yeah. and they're all on 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 display, a stunning tour de force 
of American uh, oceanic uh, capability back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah that was, it was called Ocean Liner Row. Yep. Oh, is what or Luxury Row. Luxury right. By the way, one of our listeners... Luxury Row, yeah. yeah. One of our listeners, John P., says if, if well, this is kind of, he says, if you can get the email to Richard, he says, say, suggest to Larry that his story about these ocean liners would make a hell of a movie. <laughs> oh. Have you thought of getting Hollywood or, or maybe uh, uh, what, Spielberg would be the perfect guy? Perfect, I would love to. Perfect I Americana think... guy to make the movie and we'll have Georgia, you know, doing her fencing on the fantail. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's do I it. Also, I also wanted to Oh, I'm sorry. That, 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 that was John Francis. I, I, I saw I saw just John. I didn't see if the last name was our familiar associate producer, John Francis, who for some reason is not calling in. But John, yes, that's an excellent idea. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to also share something about Posh. Uh, okay. Port, port over starboard home. Port out. Port out starboard home. Um, the reason was that New York is at 41 degrees latitude and uh, London's about 52. And so the reason was that you could sleep late in the morning without the sun waking you up yep. on the way over. And there's yes. another one. Uh, and I, I haven't, I've never revealed this on the radio, but I spent 10 years in the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary. I was a commander. So I... Uh, I patrolled New York Harbor for 10 years, and mm-hmm. I learned also that that, uh, that dirty word, you know, S-H-I-T, also a nautical yes. term. Also a nautical <laughs> term. And it stands for ship high in transit. That's what oh. it stands for, reality. And one last thing I want to share with you. Um, I think it was about uh, 2010, 2011, I was on patrol in the Hudson River on a foggy day, and I saw this sailing ship, green and black, coming out of the fog, and it passed us. And it was like a ghost ship, you know? It sailed by, and I didn't see a a soul on the deck. And I told my my helmsman, turn around, I want to catch that ship. So we raced up the Hudson River to catch the ship, because I didn't see the name, and I came upon it, and it was the... HMS Bounty, the one that had been what? built for mutiny on the Bounty. So we we circled her, we escorted her, took a lot of pictures of her, and then we continued our patrol. Now and you then, were in a launch and not at a large a large uh, coast no, no, cutter, speed right? No, speedboat, yeah, a patrol okay. boat. And yeah, so okay. I was heartbroken. A month later, she floundered. She got caught in a storm, and the rudder broke. And I had the uh, the displeasure and the tragic sight of her going down. But I, I saw her come out of the fog, and she looked like a ghost ship. And the mm-hmm. irony that she did mm-hmm. become a ghost ship a month later. You know, John like, Francis just gave me an idea, Robert and Larry and Georgia. The way we get the funds, and I want, Larry, you to talk about this, to save and refurbish the SS United States and put her back on the on the high seas where she belongs – Mm-hmm. is to do a movie. Because in the movie, you That'd can lay great. out all the reasons why it's us. It's who we are, and it's who we need to become again. And mm-hmm. that way, people will flock to theaters, and then you take a portion of the of the uh, proceeds, you know, and you wind up being able to refurbish the ship. That's a great idea. Uh, now all we have to do is bell the cat, as my grandmother would say. <laughs> By the way... 
if you ever want to do a show on that swap, the Titanic insurance scam, I have a friend. Yeah, no, Gordon. that's a super, super idea for a show. Who can we get in addition to you? Well, Gordon James Giannotto was the one who brought it to my attention, and uh, we've done a show. We did a show last year, actually, on uh, on the anniversary of the Titanic going down. We did oh a my. program, and we put it on YouTube. Though. But he's uh, always willing to speak about it, and he's a very good uh, raconteur, and he knows his Well, history. obviously, I, uh, let me look at my calendar here on the computer. Sorry, folks, I'm doing this in real time. Let me go skipping through the months. I'm looking at April, April 12th, which is the day she was at, lost at sea. Oh, that's a Friday, which means we could do it on, the, on Saturday the 13th. She went down on the 15th. She left port on the 12th. I thought it was 12th. the 12th. Oh, she left port on the 12th. She, all right, yep. so the 15th is Monday. So we do it yep. Sunday. We do that it on the 14th. Great. That would be wonderful. I yeah, think pencil that in. Pencil that in. I mean, if there's major space news, we'll have to, to move it. But, uh, yeah, that would be a heck of a show to do on the 14th. Well, oh, thank you very much for Wasn't there a poem? Excuse me? Wasn't there a poem? No, the 18th of April. In 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year and the midnight ride right of Paul Revere. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for a great show, and hello to uh, Miss Lambert, and I enjoy you all very hello, much. Hello, Rich. Yeah. Hi, Richard. Hi. It's Robert. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Robert. Have a good night, folks. I'm, I'm signing uh, off. She's, uh, George is you slightly too. seasick from her reminiscences, so you have to... <laughs> You know, or maybe those late night parties with those tall, fluted champagne glasses <clears throat> when she was walking the decks at sunrise. Hmm. Beautiful, wonderful memories. Thank you very Aren't much. They? I'll continue Aren't listening on, on the internet. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Good night. Uh, guys, we've got a few minutes left, a little less than 15. Talk about how we saved the ship. Talk about mm. the conservancy. Talk about Susan Gibbs. Talk about mm. her lineage with her her grandfather, uh, talk about the efforts to try to reconstitute this amazing slice of Americana. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they've been working tirelessly um, to, to, you know, to save the ship. And I, you have to admire them because uh, I'm not sure what uh, the monthly bill is to keep it tied up to the dock in Philly, but it's uh, it's in the tens of thousands somewhere. 70, 80,000 I heard at one point. Wow. So they've got to come up with all of this money and uh, they uh, they work tirelessly. They throw parties. They uh, uh, they do a whole bunch of stuff. And of course, the best way to, to learn more about it is uh, to go to their website. And I, I, I emailed that also. So hopefully you'll put it up on your uh, on your site. Yeah, so I think people... Kinthea may already have it up, but I'll go check, and if not, Good. it will be up Good. momentarily. Good. So, uh, Susan, uh, uh, was, uh, Mr. Gibbs was her uh, grandfather. She doesn't remember uh, much about him, but um, she uh, uh, saw the ship one day and uh, said, wow, my grandfather built this. I want to learn more, and uh, she did. And um, she uh, became a believer in saving her grandfather's uh, uh, work. And uh, she's been working at it ever since. Uh, she's got a, a good group working with her. And uh, 
hopefully they can make it. I mean, they've tried to, uh, the ideal place would be New York City along the Hudson uh, and turn it into a hotel, similar to what they did with the uh, Queen Mary in California, uh, a hotel, restaurant, uh, convention center, kind of offer tours and things like that. Uh, they haven't been able to find a developer. They've come close. Uh, that that hasn't happened yet. Uh, there was maybe a, a year or two ago, uh, Crystal Cruise Lines uh, took an interest in the ship uh, and wanted to convert it into uh, one of their cruise ships, uh, keeping as much of the uh, original lines as they could uh, and um, still making it recognizable to some degree as uh, the United States. Uh, they looked at it. They had a big uh, public relations campaign to, to boot the idea up and get it going. Unfortunately, when uh, they looked at the price tag to uh, bring the ship back up to par, um, it wasn't a good uh, business uh, arrangement. So they they didn't do it. Uh, but what they found was that uh, the ship, uh, in terms of, of the haul, uh, that how good Mr. Gibbs uh, designed the hall. It's still very seaworthy in terms of uh, structure. Uh, the inside of it is badly gutted because... It well, they had that auction, and they took out all the asbestos, too. Well, that's it. They, took, they sent it over to the Ukraine. They pulled all the asbestos out. I mean, out. Gibbs was determined this ship was not going to go down by fire. Right, right. Uh, so the asbestos uh, pull, was pulled out, and uh, it's, I've been through the ship. Uh, it's uh, it needs a lot of work inside. Do you have any estimate, roughly, at how much money we're obviously talking over a hundred million? Yeah, uh, no, I don't. Okay. You might find that information on but the website. Somewhat, for someone like Donald, it's a hundred million is nothing. Yeah. Think, think of the majesty and the pride and the identification of literally a vessel that embodies when America was at its acme, at its apex, at its zenith of what we were and can be again. Yeah, and maybe they can do something about the name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he likes to have his name on everything. Well, you don't want to change the name. Come on. Yes, that's United States. No, no, no. We don't tamper with that. You know, no, you have memorials. You have whatever, you know. Well, that's it. There's, there's, it's sacred. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's definitely sacred. Georgia. I have, a, I, have, I have a question to ask, Larry. It's a really random question. You know, they make a lot of money on the, on the Queen Elizabeth here in, in, uh, in Long Beach. Um, Having ghost tours. Were there ever any ghost stories oh, about the United question. States? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I can't think of any offhand. Uh, but, you know, there's still a lot of crew members around. And I'm sure you could come up with some ghost stories uh, that, uh, that would be good at night. Yeah. On a full moon, that would be a, a great way to make a little extra money. <laughs> I can just see it. I can just see it. 
So they're trying to raise money. This idea of a movie, which would, of course, make a huge amount of money. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you could send missions to Pluto with the amount of money that you would make on a movie like this. And, yeah. and to allocate a percentage to re- reconstitute her, to put her back on the seas as an ambassador. See, I don't, I don't see her as a, as, a, as a hotel sitting somewhere, you know, stationary. She deserves mm-hmm. to be on the seas. I mean, mm-hmm. she's got those incredible. Well, what happened to the engines? Are the engines still in, in good They're condition? They're still in there. They're still in there. Now the props were taken somewhere and put on the lawn at some maritime museum, I believe. Yeah, the Merchant Marine Academy uh, Museum on Long Island. But they could be reclaimed. They could be reclaimed. Last I knew, there was a uh, um, a propeller uh, on one of the decks, one of the upper decks. It was still there. Oh. Um, they're huge. Uh, yeah. I mean, so can you imagine the ship touring the world, showcasing to all those people that want to know what life in America is like, taking America to them? Mm-hmm. I mean, she'd be an incredible ambassador. Yeah. Yeah, you could have a lot of great museum displays, uh, interactive exhibits. Uh, it would be a great touring ship, yeah. And you could go back in time. You could reconstitute the orchestras, the ambiance, the moonlight that Georgia described on the upper decks, all mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hope the idea catches on. Well, this audience we have is very diverse. I've gotten emails from... All kinds of interesting people. By the way, if you want to get in, in the last few minutes of the show and talk to Larry about Arcana or Georgia, who was on the ship, both of them were actually sailed on this amazing vessel, 917-889-8802. We lost a couple that dropped off. I probably should have answered them earlier. I'm sorry, guys. You can dial back in, 917-889-8802. It, it's, it's so hard to put to rest an idea because this ship was more than just a ship. She was, going back to our earlier conversation, uh, Larry, she embodied mm-hmm. us, who we are. Right. Yeah, and, I... you know, and you know that immersion in, in period, um, you can't get that on the modern cruise ships, you know? Sure. It, it's a completely different experience. I remember uh, that movie, Somewhere in Time, with uh, Jane Seymour, where the... the uh, Chris Reeves and is in Christopher Reeves. Yes, Christopher Reeves is in the hotel room, and it's a modern hotel room, like a Motel Six. And all of a sudden, it morphs into this beautiful turn of the century uh, golden light ambiance. Hmm. And it's it's a completely different experience. And to have a ship that would provide that movement back in time would just be amazing. See, she could be a showcase between the past and the future. There's all kinds of cutting-edge, amazing technologies could employ on a ship like this. For instance, Mm -hmm. a friend of mine, who you've actually probably heard on the show, George, Walter Jenkins, he now has engines that run on water. Mm, Can you imagine converting the SS United States engines to run literally on the oceans on which she sails and to demonstrate this technology. And the only place to buy this technology, everybody out there all over the world, is in the United States of America, that kind of thing. Well, all it takes is a collective will, doesn't it? And some imagination. 
So does a certain guy living at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue have the imagination to see <laughs> how this could transform the perception of the United States now into something at his behest that could, in conjunction with NASA and making public all these secret images, would totally not only transform the country, but would transform perceptions in, in history of his very presidency. Mm-hmm. That would be lovely, but I think he's rather preoccupied at the moment. <laughs> well, you can change people's attention just like that. Remember, <laughs> remember the old all saw that politics is 99% perception? No. The word squirrel comes to mind. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> you know, squirrel? <laughs> yep, yep. Well, at least she didn't suffer the fate of the America. That is so tragic. I mean, there's there's hope, yeah, and where yeah. there's there's a, a, a ship docked, there is hope. And on the exterior, except for some paint, she looks pretty good. Um, I once uh, sent a copy of the book on the America to uh, Ken Burns. Oh, excellent! Uh, excellent. Because it, uh, you know, with the, with the wartime experience, yes, all the things we were just talking about terms of the glory and the beauty of these ships uh, that it might be something that combined with the United States he might want to do uh, you know one of his pieces on so hopefully he's listening <laughs> or we can send him a tape you can send tapes tape. anywhere remember we sent a major you know video three and a half hour video to the president of the United States it's always back to it's who you know you know, remember that old uh, uh, story about the whole Kevin Bacon game, six degrees of separation? Right. Well, I have personally one degree of separation from the president, and I'll bet I have, if I can think of them, uh, one degree of separation from Ken Burns. So mm-hmm. this is the perfect segue, Larry. Plug your book again. Talk about your book, where they can get it. And what's so they can, get it, they can get it at uh, the Glen Cannon Press. Uh, go to my website, click books, go down to Glen Cannon Press, and uh, that's the publisher that can put it, give it to you. Uh, and also um, go to Amazon. Uh, but the publisher likes to have personal contact and send it out. So that's probably the best route. The, uh, can, people the American- get, can people get, considering this is an important piece of history, can they get an autographed copy, Larry? Sure, sure. Because um, you've done one of the best biographies of this, uh, you know, Queen of the Seas that I've I've seen, and I've seen quite a few of them. But this one has heart. Thank you. Thank this you. one, this one has. This is 3D in a 2D world. This wow. is the majesty and amazement of this this unique moving monument that we created. I mean, we've got Mount Rushmore, we've got the Statue of Liberty. Why should we allow, pun intended? the SS United States to founder for lack of a few dollars. We're the richest nation on the planet. I mean, even the U.S. government could do this as part of a national initiative to create goodwill around the world. Yeah. And commerce. And sell the future and the past together, because that's what we stand for. That's what the United States was, uh, you know, uh, nouveau riche combined with the destiny of America's future as she mm-hmm. sailed from port to port at mm-hmm. lick, lickety split, split speed. Mm-hmm. By the way, point yeah. of trivia. Remember, you said that her her horsepower was two hundred forty one thousand horses in yes. those in those engines. 
the yes. Saturn V that took um, <clears throat> the three guys to and from the moon, 160 million horsepower. Oh. 160 million to get human beings to and from the moon compared to 241,000 to sail the seas of Earth. It's amazing. Okay, final thoughts. You've got a couple of minutes. Uh, well, I would, ahead, I, would, I would absolutely love to see her back in service and uh, and and have a connection to a, a different time and a different place, and and not have all of that lost. It would be such a tragedy if this was allowed to just disappear like the America. Such a tragedy. Um, I keep thinking to your theme tonight, which uh, was "Make America Great Again," mm-hmm. and uh, this ship uh, symbolizes that. It's uh, symbolizes "Made in America" when. Uh, what we made uh, was the was set the standard for the world. Uh, this ship certainly did that, and uh, uh, it, it, I mean we're all in agreement. Uh, it would be a very sad day to see her wind up uh, beached in the, some place in India and ripped apart. So now we have think to think of who do we know that we know that we know that knows Ken Burns or Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Um, can't help you there. I'm not. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, we've run out of shows, runway and uh, ocean for tonight. Anyway. I want to thank my guests, George Lambert and Larry Driscoll. An amazing story, an amazing story of two amazing ships. Uh, we have to do it again. Maybe when we have a breakthrough in saving them. Oh, we'll have a big party and uh, uh, we'll do it on the air. Yeah. Okay. So until next week, same time, same that channel. Remember, third star for the rest. Right on till morning. Night, everyone. <laughs>